Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The Internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com study says black girls are viewed as more adult and needing less protection than white girls do. The impact of these impressions affect the quality of the education they receive and how severely they're punished in school and ultimately the justice system. The authors of this study join us now. Dr. Jamelia Blake from Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas. And Rebecca Epstein is here with me in our studio in Washington, D.C. Welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. All right, Dr. Blake, let's start with you. As, as the lead researcher, tell me why you wanted to do this study. Um, well, I was really motivated by what we know about the discipline experiences of Black girls. Black girls are oversuspended. And so I wanted to understand why that was happening. And what we thought, building off the work of um, other research that I've looked at this at Black boys, is perhaps it's this adultification that is guiding Black girls' punitive experiences in social justice systems. Your study shows that, and you mentioned that word already, adultification, that that happens. Uh, black girls between the ages of five and nine are perceived as being much older than they actually are. What were some of the questions, uh, Dr. Blake, that you asked the people in the survey? So we asked them, um, do black girls need more protection? Um, do black girls need more comforting? Do black girls know more about adult topics um, such as sex? So we have some very direct um, questions that you wouldn't expect a five-year-old to know about, right? You would, and you would expect a five-year-old to need comforting and nurturing. Again, is really shocking. Rebecca, as, as the director of the Georgetown Law Center on Poverty and Inequality, what kind of impact do these perceptions have on the lives of these 
young black girls? We think the impact is significant. The data is clear that black girls are punished more harshly than white girls in school and in the juvenile justice system. Hmm. Now, when you talk about punishment, what, how are they punished more harshly? In, in what way? Black girls are suspended at five times the rates of white girls, and they're actually suspended at twice the rate of white boys. We know that teachers more often call the police on black girls and that black girls' cases are less likely to be dropped by prosecutors. Prosecutors use their discretion to drop more cases against white girls than black girls. I'm going to make a little bit of a leap here, Rebecca. If these thoughts and these kind of feelings are ingrained in someone when it comes to looking at a girl who is five years old, when these people are on juries and they have to rule on adult black women, do you think one transfers over to the other? One sticks around long enough to make those tough choices? Well, it seems clear that when we are projecting these perceptions onto black girls as early as age five, that's a critical stage of development. And it does last, according to our research, all the way up through high school. So as girls are forming their view of the world and their place in it and their relationship to others, they are getting this feedback that they don't need nurturing or protection. And that's likely to very much affect their long-term outcomes, including their outlook on life as adults. So, Dr. Blake, you're a black woman. You're an educator. Uh, Did you have a personal connection to this study? Yeah. As a black woman and formerly a black girl, I have a personal connection because you know, as we've seen from comments from other women across the country, that this is true to the experience of Black girls, that they're seen as being more adult-like and not needing innocence. So it really hits home. And, you know, what I'm now kind of struggling with, which has been asked to me many times, is what do we do with this information? What do parents do with this information? You know, we, we have some ideas of what we do for teachers and those in you know, the criminal justice system on preparing them to address this bias, but how can parents protect against this bias? I would add that the the resounding response from the community is, duh. <laughs> so many Black women have said, we knew this was happening. Of course this happened to us. This is not news. But what we've done is put a name to the phenomenon and provided some data to prove that it's happening. And with that evidence, we do hope to start a national conversation about how to recognize and address this insidious form of implicit bias. Dr. Blake, and I'm sure, as Rebecca said, that uh, you kind of maybe knew where the results were going to go. What did you think? Um, I had the surprise moment because I didn't expect adultification to emerge at age five. And that was um, a little bit disheartening um, because just to think that you're seeing a five-year-old, six-year-old, a seven-year-old as being more adult-like saddens me. And and from my conversations with, you know, women who've reached out to me across the country, they feel the same way. But on the other hand, I was excited because we have one potential explanation for what might be underlying um, the punitive experiences of of Black girls um, in schools and in the juvenile justice system. So it's a starting point to, as Rebecca indicated, to start a national conversation and move us forward to more scholarship in this area and the development of policies and training to address this implicit bias. Authors of Girlhood Interrupted, The Erasure of Black Girls' Childhood. Dr. Jamelia Blake and Rebecca Epstein, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. The stars at night are big and bright. Speaking of our objections. 
Now we're going to look at what can happen when a city gets really hot economically. Any story of growth means migration will follow. Some people move into a city in big numbers for the jobs, while others decide to leave. When there's more demand for housing, things get more expensive. Neighborhoods change, and that's the subject of this summer's stories from the NPR Cities Project. I was a part of the community. You need to move out. Supporting gentrifying establishments. Thank God we found a beautiful home. I may not afford the rent. Today we're going to Austin, Texas. It's been one of the fastest growing cities in the country for years with a fast and furious technology sector. One of the parts of the city that is changing drastically is a historically black neighborhood, East Austin. A lot of longtime residents are moving. Audrey McClinchy of member station KUT has been talking to people who've left but are still coming back to go to church. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together, congregation. I sought the Lord and he heard me. Pastor Clarence Jones leads the Greater St. John's Baptist Church in East Austin. It's been around for more than 75 years. Back in 1944, 45, somewhere in there, the members moved here pitched a tent, you know, and uh, they worship in the tent until they was able to build this little port right here. This little port is a small church on a corner lot. The white paint's chipped and a steeple rises above the gabled roof. Around the time this church was built, single-story homes were cropping up nearby. People like choir director Lisa Spearman have spent many Sundays in the area. I have belonged to this church since I was a little girl, maybe four years old. And how long have you been directing the choir? I've been doing this for, I want to say, five years. And my mother was doing it before me. But Spearman recently moved to the suburbs as the neighborhood around the church began to change. She'd been living in her grandmother's house when the family decided to sell. The taxes were too high, just sky high. Houses around us were getting remodeled and sold for double, triple of what they paid for back in the day. Others have moved to smaller towns outside of Austin, including Pastor Jones. I like that it's more quieter. (laughs) I wanted to know more about how East Austin is changing, so I took a walk with University of Texas professor Eric Tang. Back in the 1950s and 60s, nightclubs here on East 11th Street hosted major music acts. The street was also busy during the day. You had Hillside Pharmacy, which was the um, main pharmacy for... African-American residents on the east side. They had few other options of places to shop, or to live for that matter. Starting in 1928, the city refused basic services to black families living anywhere but in East Austin. And so, this area became a bustling black neighborhood. These days, most of the businesses have changed. Hillside Pharmacy by name still exists, and it's rather controversial. It is now a restaurant, and Pharmacy, P-H-A-R-M, has been replaced by F-A-R-M, to highlight the farm-to-table service that this restaurant provides to its customers. Tang says many longtime residents feel that new restaurants aren't catering to them. It's a sign of a larger shift. Among the fastest-growing cities in the United States between 2000 and 2010, Austin was the only one to see absolute numerical decline in its African-American population. Tang talked to former East Austin residents. He found that many had moved to suburbs just outside the city to towns like this one. This is the grocery store that I used to go to when I first moved here. It was very small, not very much produce, fresh produce. Twelve years ago, Leslie Perkins moved to the town of Maynard. It's 15 miles east of Austin, fewer than 10,000 people. And while Austin has lost black residents, Maynard's black population has increased by 10% since 2000. 
Perkins and I go inside a Mexican restaurant. There, she tells me why she left Austin. Even though I was a teacher, I could not afford to live in Austin, so the closest and most direct to my job was Maynard. After a little bit, she changed jobs as well and began teaching in a Maynard school. When she did, Perkins saw the migration of black families like her own. My students followed. So I would be teaching a new group of students, but I was like, oh, I know your cousin. Oh, oh, you're the younger sibling of the student I already taught. Perkins and her family will still drive into the city for things Maynard can't offer, a museum or a dip in a pool. But she misses living in Austin. I was a part of the community. It doesn't really exist anymore as it did. Uh, And that's pretty sad for me. As for Maynard, it's small, but it's growing rapidly. The town just got a Walmart and a Starbucks. And soon, perhaps, a new congregation. Back at Greater St. John's Baptist Church in East Austin, there's a for sale sign on the front lawn. Pastor Clarence Jones is looking to move. And I see a whole lot of hope and growth there in Maynard. I think that the church would do well to move in that direction. In a church driveway in East Austin, I'm Audrey McGlinchey for the NPR Cities Project. That story was produced in partnership with KUT's On My Block project about the changing East Austin area. Seattle's a great place to visit because it has, I guess you could say, a little bit of everything, but I like to think of it as a lot of everything. Seattle's Central District was the hub of the city's black community for much of the 20th century. Today, skyrocketing housing prices are pushing many black residents out of the neighborhood and out of the city, too. But there's a new housing development that's meant to help black residents and businesses stay in the Central District and bring back others who have left. For KUW's Race and Equity team, Ann Dornfeld has more. Earl Lancaster has been cutting hair at the corner of 23rd and Union for a quarter of a century. Some of the highlights were cutting some of the Sonics, uh, Mariners, cutting the young kids, and turning the fathers and cutting their kids here. I mean, it's been, it's been amazing. Earl's cuts and styles used to be surrounded by other black-owned businesses and a working-class community. Today, most of those businesses are gone. And living across from Earl's will cost you $17.25 a month for a tiny studio in glassy new construction. The wrecking ball is coming for his barbershop next. I never thought I had to lose it. I love this space. On this corner of 23rd years, it's been, it's been wonderful. It's done a lot for me. Unlike many of the black businesses priced out of the area in recent years, though, Lancaster has a plan to stay in the neighborhood. A group of community partners is redeveloping a lot one block away into 115 affordable housing units, along with retail space for businesses like Earl's. The homes will be marketed specifically to black people who make between 30 and 60 percent of the median income. Murals from local black artists will line the courtyard to provide cultural and historical context. We want to be able to create a sense of a uh, place for people to be able to connect to and learn about the great stories of those who have made the Central District their home. Wyking Garrett is CEO of Africatown, one of the partner organizations on the project. Garrett is black and he grew up in the neighborhood. His connection to this land is personal. In 1968, his grandfather co-founded Liberty Bank on this site. It was a rare bank focusing on the needs of people of color when getting home and business loans was much easier for whites. For decades, black Seattleites had been largely relegated to the Central District due to redlining and racial housing covenants. 
Still, the co-founders themselves had to have a white man buy the land for the bank. So these are the type of obstacles that were faced by blacks at that time. And many of those obstacles exist in different forms to this day. Garrett says the focus of the Liberty Bank development will be to keep more black residents of the Central District from getting priced out of the neighborhood and hopefully bring back some who've had to leave. We're striving to disrupt that status quo of people just being, you know, pushed around and displaced and create a model where communities can actually grow and thrive in place. Garrett dreams of the kind of iconic black businesses that used to line this street. Like Thompson's point of view, the soul food restaurant where his sister worked. He'd go there after school to see her and eat french fries. It's now a hipster bar with a bordello theme. Fifty years ago, this neighborhood was 70% black. Today it's under 20%, and the community doesn't want to see that continue, and we agree. Chris Persons is CEO of Capitol Hill Housing, the developer on the project. Ironically, the same open housing laws that made it illegal to limit black residents to this part of Seattle could now complicate efforts to bring them back. It's illegal to give rental preference based on race. We certainly are going to follow the letter of all of the fair housing laws. There is ability in marketing, particularly to communities that have been displaced or who are at risk of being displaced, and that's where we're going to focus our energy. Person says the law does allow preferential leasing to black commercial tenants, like Earl Lancaster. He's planning to make the move across the street. He says it's bittersweet to leave his old barbershop, but he's optimistic. Change is good. Change is real good. I mean, I'm looking forward to it. A new fresh paint, new walls, new start, new, new everything. And Lancaster says the prospect of affordable apartments in new construction is creating buzz in the neighborhood. But there's some people I know who's waiting to get on the list. I'm waiting to get on the list. The Liberty Bank project is slated to be complete next summer. In Seattle Central District, I'm Ann Dornfeld, KUOW News. James Arthur Baldwin, word warrior. He was born in Harlem Hospital, New York, August 2nd, 1924. Oddly enough, the same year that my mother was born in the South. His name at birth was James Arthur Jones, to a mother blessed with a gift of fertility and to a father he would never know. At the tender age of three, he would be renamed the gift of a stepfather with the cognomen Baldwin, the name that would resound around the literary and black worlds and continue long after his life was lived. His stepfather fought to teach him the Bible, and for three difficult years he acquiesced and became a child preacher, winning souls in Harlem until he could bear it no more. For he knew, at the tender age of 12, that he would be a writer, even as he won awards for his wordcraft in school and read and reread novels such as Uncle Tom's Cabin and A Tale of Two Cities, while he would later write, he rocked a baby in one hand and he cradled a book in the other. His early school teachers recognized his early facility with words and encouraged his writing. He would later write with keen insight and a savage wit about all around him. Fellow writers, other books, movies, plays, all became grist for his ever-churning mill. Indeed, he would later eviscerate Uncle Tom's Cabin as much for its poor writing 
as for its bloodless, vapid telling of a tale that demanded courage and vitality to reflect the deep and abiding horrors of the American slave system and its tortuous aftermath. In an early critical work, Everybody's Protest Novel, reprinted in Notes of a Native Son, Baldwin slashes at Uncle Tom's Cabin, as well as Richard Wright's breakthrough hit, Native Son, damning all such works as unequal to the task, Baldwin writes. They emerge for what they are, a mirror of our confusion, dishonesty, panic, trapped and immobilized in the sunlit prison of the American dream. Finally, the aim of the protest novel becomes something very closely resembling the zeal of those alabaster missionaries to Africa to cover the nakedness of the natives, to hurry them into the pallid arms of Jesus and thence into slavery. This is writing. Baldwin published this book review in the spring 1949 edition of Zero Magazine, and his simmering style brought him work in The Nation, Commentary, The New York Times Book Review, and Harper's. Many of the journals he wrote for are now no longer extant. But that bite, that crackle, that insouciance would mark his writing, especially in his novels, and most especially when he brooked the river of race. As a man of his time, he traveled widely and lived to see life lived in different worlds, under different suns, so to speak. He met Africans abroad, more likely than not in France, and tried to learn from them many of the things which weren't really available to U.S. blacks. For they may look alike or remarkably similar to one another, but how they see and perceive the world is quite different. For one seeks entry into the white state, the other seeks freedom from the white invader. In his essay, Encounter on the Seine, Baldwin notes how Francophone Africans regard the French. The French African comes from a region and a way of life which, at least from the American point of view, is exceedingly primitive, and where exploitation takes a more naked form. In Paris, the African Negro status, conspicuous and subtly inconvenient, is that of a colonial. And he leads here the intangibly precarious life of someone abruptly and recently uprooted. His bitterness is unlike that of his American kinsmen, in that it is not so treacherously likely to be turned against himself. He has, not so many miles away, a homeland to which his relationship no less than his responsibility, is overwhelmingly clear. His country must be given, or it must seize, its freedom. This bitter ambition is shared by his fellow colonials, with whom he has a common language, and whom he has no wish whatever to avoid, without whose sustenance, indeed, he would be almost altogether lost in Paris. By contrast, he reasons, U.S. blacks rush to disaffiliate themselves from other blacks, making them lonely, isolated, and quite lost in such places as Paris. For the U.S. black, who was called Negro during Baldwin's early days, is so profoundly alienated from the lands, languages, and faiths of his fathers 
not to mention a keener alienation from the forces in power in the land of his, her birth, that she, he is, in Baldwin's prescient phrase, written several years before Ralph Ellison's classic work, An Invisible Man, whether in Paris or in Harlem. Baldwin's brilliant observations and analyses reveals an utterly alienated soul, in truth, nowhere at home, able to dwell anywhere, but to find safety, solace, and true community nowhere. But Baldwin, ever striving to be the exception rather than the rule, returned incessantly to Paris, where he could live, work, and play in a way that the U.S. didn't make possible. Baldwin's gift is this relentless truth-telling about Americans, both black and white, who are locked for centuries in a fatal, repellent, loveless, and sometimes loving embrace, each a stranger to the other, each knowing that which is unsaid, but thought deeply of the other. From his earliest critic days to his life as a successful novelist, Baldwin tells uncomfortable truths about what America means and what it does not. His eye is unerring, for he cites true. His tongue rakes the nation of his birth, which, by long centuries' practice, hates and fears him and his kind. The habituation of American hatreds long lived. In this hour, in this day of conflict, his insights bear repeating. For although some things have indeed changed, we must screen the naked truth that some things remain the same. Time, it seems, is a mirage which passes to be sure, but which replays itself like a temporal Mobius strip, replaying horrors long thought past with new, insidious forms. In his essay, Stranger in the Village, Baldwin foresees the now that we are about to inherit by observing this world is white no longer and it will never be white again. Could he foresee the rise of a Trump figure who seeks with might and main to make America great again by a mad dash to the 1950s? Perhaps, perhaps not. Maybe this was a vision beyond his sharp kin, but I wouldn't bet on it. He was a man who knew and admired both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. He was hurt by Black Panther Minister of Information Eldridge Cleaver's dismissal of him for his sexual preference. But Baldwin, being Baldwin, surely reflected on the hurt that his reviews gave to Richard Wright, in some ways an older friend and a mentor. In his later years, Hepatitis almost laid him low, but it would be cancer of the esophagus that would return him to his ancestors. His words, his brilliance, his courage remain to nourish new, younger lives, buoyed both by his greatness as by his gayness. James Arthur Baldwin has become an ancestor. Indeed, he has become an immortal. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. The word is killing black people. 
And we're going to spend the next few minutes hearing about an African-American woman who would not let cultural norms stand in the way of her imagination. Her name is Octavia Butler, and she was a literary giant in the world of science fiction, a genre that was and is dominated by white men. The Huntington Library, just north of L.A., is honoring Butler and her work in an exhibition this summer. Here's Karen Grigsby-Bates from our Code Switch team. Octavia Butler's vivid imagination was the product of a smart kid who spent a lot of time alone. I'm an only child, and I had no idea how to get along with other children. And also, I was a strange kid who'd learned to um, stay by herself and make things up. That's Butler, who died in 2006, talking to Sci-Fi Buzz. The strange kid grew up in her widowed mother's Pasadena home. Young Octavia spent her time reading and writing stories. The early ones were about horses, but when she was nine, Octavia Butler stumbled upon something that would change her life. I was influenced to write science fiction um, two years after I began writing other things by a bad movie. You poor demented humans. To imagine you can destroy me with your old-fashioned toy. That really bad 1954 sci-fi movie was Devil Girl from Mars, she tells a UCLA audience. Here, Devil Girl strides into a pub and tells its armed patrons their puny little guns are no match for her. I can control power beyond your wildest dreams. My response to the movie was, geez, I can write a better story than that. Somebody got paid for writing that story. By the time she was in high school, Butler became determined that she would be one of those paid somebodies, something that worried her conservative mother. The paying world was not full of science fiction writers, let alone ones that were women or Negro. So through community college and after, Butler held what she called lots of horrible little jobs to pay the bills. But she continued to focus her creative energy on science fiction. It was a focus that would lead to a pile of novels and short stories, several awards, and a coveted MacArthur Fellowship, the so-called Genius Grant. Visitors can see Butler's career unfolding in the Huntington Library's exhibit, Octavia E. Butler, Telling My Stories. So the exhibit is roughly chronological. Exhibit curator Natalie Russell walks me into the large, high-ceilinged room. There's about 100 items in the exhibit selected from the archive, which includes over 8,000 individually cataloged manuscripts, letters, and photographs, and an additional 80 boxes of ephemera. Big glass cases display letters, notes, story outlines, and drawings that show how Butler progressed as a writer. The walls are hung with blow-ups of childhood drawings and her handwritten instructions to herself for scene-setting, character development, and affirmations. Russell reads one. I am a best-selling writer. I write best-selling books. These are some of the kind of motivational notes that she would write to herself. Every day in every way, I am researching and writing my award-winning, best-selling books and short stories. Butler's high school portrait and a group photo of her at an early science fiction writer's workshop show a young woman who stares purposefully into the camera without a hint of a smile. It's the face of someone who has set herself a task. Natalie Russell says it took a good deal of persistence for Butler to create something for which there was no template. Butler said she wanted to be able to see herself in the stories that she loved, and she didn't, so she wrote herself in, and she became that role model that she didn't have. Before Octavia Butler, science fiction's main characters tended to be white and male. When she began writing, she was told people would accept alien characters far more quickly than black ones. Her early book covers had white characters on them because publishers were not convinced white readers would buy them otherwise. In a 2000 interview, Butler tells Charlie Rose she was undeterred. 
I don't recall ever having wanted desperately to be a black woman science fiction writer. I wanted to be a writer. She wrote her first novels while working. The Pattern Master was published in 1976, the first of a series that elaborated on a story she began in childhood, a story of elite beings with telepathic superpowers who ruled a mute subclass. It was a study in power, morality, and race. In 1979, she published Kindred, one of the books that came to be most closely associated with her. Natalie Russell describes it. A tale about a contemporary African-American woman who travels back in time to antebellum Maryland to a slave plantation. Butler's heroine, Dana, is a writer who has to save her slave-owning ancestor's life so she can exist more than 150 years later. Russell said Butler did a lot of research for this book. She needed to go to Maryland, see what the geography was like, find out what a working slave plantation was like. How far away were the towns? If you were trying to run away, where would you go? Was it forest? Was it brush? Those details help make Kindred a classic. Its theme of interdependence is taught in high schools and colleges annually and has been part of citywide reading programs. And it was almost named something else. Natalie Russell says Butler's publisher wanted to call the book Dana. Butler hated that and sent several alternatives. And in the carbon copy of the letter she sent here on the case, December 26, 1978, she offers a few more suggestions, including Birthright and Kindred. Kindred paved the way for a number of books, like The Parable of the Sower, that looked at life in the dystopian near future. Octavia Butler may have begun as the only black woman science fiction writer, but she made sure she didn't remain the only one. Stephen Barnes is a science fiction writer and was a longtime friend of Butler's. Over Skype, he says this. She opened a door and, and walked all the way through it and created, therefore, a path for others. His wife, sci-fi writer Tanana Reeve Du, sees the result. When I met her in 1997, as a new writer, you could fit all of the black science fiction and fantasy writers on a stage. Uh, and, and that's not the case anymore. It's The field has exploded so much. Butler enjoyed her role in making that happen. Those sober photos from her earlier years were replaced by smiling, confident ones. In addition to her MacArthur Fellowship, Butler was awarded two of science fiction's highest honors, the Hugo and the Nebula, twice. The tall kid who'd shrunk from speaking now held forth with ease, charming her audiences and interviewers. And then it all stopped. On February 24, 2006, Octavia Butler fell near her home, hit her head, and died. She was 58 years old. Stephen Barnes says her 30-year career will have a lasting effect on literature. You take Black away from her name, and she is still considered to be one of the major science fiction influences, especially one of the major female influences. So her, her place is secure. Octavia E. Butler, Telling My Stories, will be at the Huntington Library through August 7th. Karen Grigsby-Bates, NPR News. World the Broken Chains Festival in Amsterdam commemorates the day slaves were set free 154 years ago. 45,000 were set free in the former Dutch colony Suriname. Many descendants of slaves from the South American country now live in the Netherlands. Details of their history have long been hidden away in an archive in Suriname's capital, Paramaribo. Now, these handwritten 19th-century books, containing the personal data of 80,000 enslaved people in the former Dutch colony, are about to be published online. Ankte Vogel has been searching for her roots in archives. 
she found that her great-great-grandfather came from Africa and was sold to Dutch plantation owners. My children asked me, asked me about my great-grandparents and I couldn't give them any answer. So where I'm going to, I need to know where I'm coming from. Her findings were not always easy to deal with. Slaves are no human beings. So they were seen as property? Property, right. And that was real difficult to handle that. From the late 16th century onwards, the Dutch forced African people into slavery. Taken from their homes and sold to slave owners, thousands ended up on plantations in Suriname. Following abolition and independence, many descendants of the Dutch colony came to live in the Netherlands. Well, I think it's an important database, of course, for people who are descendants of people in slavery. And you have to imagine in the, in the Netherlands more than 300,000, 400,000 people are direct descendants of uh, enslaved persons or slave owners. Uh, but it's also important for our society. What most people don't realize is how much wealth slavery brought to the Netherlands. Amsterdam thrived on products coming from slave labor on plantations like cotton, cacao and tobacco. And you can still find traces of this past, symbols that people pass by every day. For some descendants, the end of slavery is a day to celebrate freedom. Still, the lack of a government apology is hard to accept. When it comes to slavery, I hope that all the other Amsterdamers connect with me and my heart and want to know the pain. It would be good if they would apologize. Some kind of recognition would be good. For Ankte Vogel, being able to confirm her family roots has brought her peace. That's good. She hopes that opening up the archives will shed more light on this dark chapter in history. Verlaansbach, El Jazeera, Amsterdam. Despite a decline in marijuana arrests since Mayor de Blasio took office, a new report says blacks and Latinos continue to make up a disproportionate number of those arrested for marijuana possession. WMIC's Beth Fertig reports. The Drug Policy Alliance commissioned the report, citing the racial disparities as part of its call to legalize marijuana in New York. Cassandra Federique, the alliance's New York state director, says blacks and Latinos made up 85 percent of those arrested for possession in de Blasio's first three years in office. Mayor de Blasio, let me be very clear. Your time is up. You either end these arrests or we march all day The report notes that only 14 people were arrested for marijuana possession on the Upper East Side last year, compared to 677 in Harlem. But a city hall spokesman said the NYPD responds to quality of life offenses when and where they're observed, many of which are reported by members of the public. He also said the de Blasio administration has led a, quote, dramatic shift away from unnecessary arrests for low-level marijuana possession in favor of summonses. However, critics note that a summons still requires someone to come to court. 
and in the meantime, they have an open criminal arrest that can affect them when they look for a job or an apartment. Beth Fertig, WNYC News. All right, boss. This jersey that we wear today, it doesn't say Red Sox. It says Boston. When we talk about undocumented immigrants, there's a tendency to automatically think of people from, say, Latin America or Asia. But late last month, a prominent leader from Boston's Irish immigrant community was detained by authorities. And his arrest is sparking some conversation about race and ethnicity when it comes to the undocumented. The world's Kenya Downs has more. In downtown Boston, the popular Irish pub Hennessy's is pretty calm. The mostly Irish immigrant staff is prepping for the evening rush. On the other side of town, in Dorchester, things are also quiet, but some say a bit more than usual. Doctors and nurses are reporting that immigrant patients are not showing up for medical appointments for fear that in some way ICE may intervene at the hospital. Ronnie Miller runs Boston's Irish International Immigrant Center. He says what he's hearing reflects a community on edge since immigration agents, or ICE, arrested John Cunningham, a local immigrant activist and Miller's close friend. Cunningham is from Ireland and came to Boston in 1999. Like a lot of Irish immigrants, he was in his 20s on a 90-day visa for summer work. But then he settled in, worked as an electrician, and ran his own company. In March, an Irish TV show interviewed Cunningham about being undocumented. All of a sudden you turn around and then, you know, so much time has gone by. Um, and, you know, you start to realize what is going to be in store for yourself and for the future, you know. Miller thinks Cunningham's decision to speak on TV about being undocumented made him a target for deportation. ICE would only confirm that his arrest was due to his visa overstay, but the chilling effect is there with Cunningham the first high-profile Irish immigrant detained under President Donald Trump. There were shockwaves that had sort of were sent through the community, a disbelief that this was actually happening. The Migration Policy Institute estimates there are just under 16,000 undocumented Irish immigrants in the U.S., although the Irish Embassy in Washington says it's more like 50,000. Most live in Boston, New York, or Chicago, and word of Cunningham's arrest has spread, including to Ireland. Fenton O'Toole is a columnist with the Irish Times in Dublin. So it's raised very much as a political issue. Every Irish government uh, consistently, when they're in touch with American officials, always raises the issue of the Irish undocumented. But it's, it's not raised nearly as much as you would think as a personal issue. And that's because there is fear. It's a fear felt among many undocumented immigrants, but less so for Irish and other European immigrants. In some ways, that makes sense. White immigrants, mainly from Canada and Europe, only represent a sliver of undocumented immigrants in the U.S. Most are from Latin America. But as Randy Capps with the Migration Policy Institute in Washington points out, ICE deports European and other non-Latino immigrants at a disproportionately low rate. It's the Latino immigrants from Mexico and Central America that are overrepresented in terms of arrests and deportations. And the numbers of Europeans or, you know, white people are very, very small. The pattern tends to be that most of the focus is on Mexicans and Central Americans. In Boston, Miller acknowledges how the city's undocumented Irish can fly under the radar compared to other immigrants. When I spoke with Miller and Cunningham a year ago, both recalled local police and immigration officials not questioning their statuses during stops. They felt they were given a pass because of their Irish accents. They even wondered if they would have been treated differently if they were black or brown. 
Miller feels that overall, the United States is not in a good place. As a nation, we've really lost our way, sort of who we are, and our values of sort of being a country that's made up of immigrants. It's why the Irish International Immigrant Center reaches out to many of Boston's undocumented immigrants for its Know Your Rights workshops. Christina Freeman, a lawyer at the center, says the workshops include talk about racial bias and law enforcement. They know there's racial bias. They've experienced it themselves. So acknowledging it as the elephant in the room and saying, look, we're teaching you what to do if you're stopped by a police officer on the street. And you look around the room and see who's in there and there's not one white face in the crowd. As for John Cunningham, he remains in detention and faces deportation back to Ireland. His close friends, including Ronnie Miller, hope that perhaps his story will change the idea of what an American or an undocumented immigrant looks like. For The World, I'm Kenya Downs, Boston. These are not isolated incidents. They're symptomatic of a broader set of racial disparities that exist in our criminal justice system. And I just want to give people a few statistics to try to put in context... It's Morning Edition on WNYC. I'm Richard Hake. Fifty years ago this week, violence broke out in the central ward of Newark, New Jersey. After four days of civil unrest, 23 people were left dead and more than 700 injured. All this week, WNYC is commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Newark riots through a somewhat unconventional lens. WNYC's editor of Special Projects, Rebecca Carroll, now joins us. Rebecca, good morning. Good morning, Richard. So instead of focusing on the retelling of the riots, uh, you decided to focus on one family. Tell us why. When I started researching the Newark riots, I found lots of anniversary stories. Ten years later, the 20th anniversary, 30th, the 40th, and they were all pretty similar. Mm -hmm. A retelling of what happened and the ruin left in its wake. I thought it would be interesting to understand the riots and their impact on the city of Newark by meeting a family that made a conscious decision to stay. Okay, let's spend a little time, though, explaining or reminding us what happened that night 50 years ago. Well, racism happened. A black cab driver named John Smith drove past two white police officers who were double parked. The officers pursued him, pulled him from the car and beat him and took him into the police precinct where he was charged with tailgating, among other minor charges. That doesn't sound like enough to start a riot. Well, rumors began to spread that police had actually killed Smith. That wasn't true, but for black Newarkers, this was the last straw. Here's some tape from WBAI Pacifica Radio from interviews in Newark that week. This police brutality has got to go. Amen. It's not right. Amen. Does that happen most of the time? Most of the time. All 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 the time. When they pick up a colored person around here somewhere, the first thing they do, they don't take them and put them in a car like they should do a person. The first thing they do, they grab him and start whooping on him like he's some kind of dog or animal or something. And that's not right. It's not right at all. The thing about Newark in 1967 was the city was run by white, Italian, and Jewish residents, and the growing black population was completely disenfranchised. And years of police violence, redlining, bad jobs, and poor education, all the systemic racism just kind of put folks over. So tell us about the family you decided to focus on, and you brought us some tape. I did. Here's Junius Williams. He's one of the most respected civil rights activists in Newark. But in 1967, he was a 20-something activist returning to Newark from a Black Power conference when he heard the news. The police were out in force. There was a curfew, and the violence was beginning. When he got back to Newark, he and some friends decided to see what was going on for themselves, not to cause any trouble, but to observe. 
So we were going up Court Street, coming up to what is now Martin Luther King Boulevard, which was then High Street. And I heard a siren. I saw police lights on the car whirling, coming toward me. And I said, oh, 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 we are in deep doo-doo now. The police pulled Junius and his three friends over. I angled a car in front of me to prevent my escape, quote-unquote. Told us to get out of the car, up against the car, mother And then they proceeded to search us. It was the first time I'd ever had an automatic shotgun staring at me. And it did not look good for life thereafter. They didn't find anything on Junius or his friends. And they told him to pop the trunk. And I had some law books in because I was still in law school. I hadn't taken the law books out. So I'm still up against the car. And shotgun man is pointing it at me. And then this old pistol man was giving us orders and trying to get us to run, I believe. Well, everybody was cool. Nobody said anything, no eye contact, nothing, just up against the car. So there was a sergeant. And I think he saw where this was going. And he said, okay, let them go. They're law students. Let them go. And even though he was in charge, he had to say it three times because they wanted to kill us. There's no doubt in my mind that they wanted to kill all of us. The police let Junius go. And you might say the second-year law student from Yale was uniquely prepared for his encounter. Junius grew up in Richmond, Virginia, but he moved to Newark a few years before the riots. It was after college, and Tom Hayden, the famed political activist, urged him to focus his civil rights organizing efforts on the city. And so Junius's experience is part of this bigger story that happens. He's at the tail end of the Great Migration when Southern blacks relocated to northern cities, searching for opportunities and a better life. Now over here, if you look at this picture... His whole extended family has deep roots in the South. That's... Many here, many mm-hmm. older, many younger. One, two, three, four, five, six, six girls. That's their mother, who wow. was born a slave in Danville, Virginia. After moving to Newark in 1965, Junius got to work. And we would walk up and down Avon Avenue asking people to come to a meeting. Hello, my name is Junius Williams. This is Corinna Fails. We're here in the neighborhood to see if there's anything we could help you with. And there was. Yeah, come on in. I want to hear because this is bad. Landlords here, look, look, at, look at my house. This house is tumbling down and I got to pay X amount of rent for that. Nonsense. Because, see, the riots, or as Junius and a lot of other black residents call it, the rebellion, was an entirely different experience for black residents than it was for white residents. Half the city fled after the riots, mostly white. Many black residents stayed because they couldn't afford to leave. But then there were people like Junius, who stayed because they saw it as an opportunity to rebuild and to mobilize a community that was hurting. Well, see, we were all trained and urging nonviolent responses. And that response was so great that Junius decided not to just stay in Newark, but to raise a family there. Now, it gets a little complicated here because Junius has two sets of kids from two different marriages 20 years apart. But a half century after what Junius considers his own near-fatal interaction with the police— he finds himself now trying to impart the hard lessons he learned that second night of the Newark riots onto his 20-something-year-old sons. But I have tried to help them understand that you have to have discipline if there is uh, ever a confrontation with the police. 
and keep your mouth shut. Look, learn. Uh, just try to cool the situation out as much as you can by, by saying, yes, officer, okay, officer. And they're not violent, young men. I, they certainly are not violent. Nobody can say they are violent. Uh, but they are articulate, and they believe that they have rights. So I think the takeaway, Richard, is that you can have a majority black and brown city council and a black mayor, but at the end of the day, there's not the same kind of representation in the police force. And although it is majority black and Hispanic, there's still a disproportionate number of white officers on the force compared to the population of Newark. And tomorrow we'll hear from the children of Junius about how their father's role in the Newark Rebellion impacted their childhoods and helped shape their perspectives on Newark, New Jersey, where they all still live. WNYC's Rebecca Carroll, thanks so much. Thanks, Richard. I want to be a cop. An unnamed police officer in Baton Rouge has filed a lawsuit against Black Lives Matter over a man who unfortunately shot and killed three cops back in July of 2016. Now, the lawsuit has to do with the notion that Black Lives Matter incited so much violence that it led this man, Gavin Long, to ambush cops uh, in Baton Rouge, which uh, led to the death of three officers and also wounded two deputies and another officer. So lawyers for one of the wounded law enforcement officers filed the complaint Friday in U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Louisiana against various arms of the Black Lives Matter movement and leaders, including DeRay McMexon and uh, Janetta Elsie. So the complaint alleges that uh, Black Lives Matter and its leaders are responsible for the shooting because they, quote, incited the violence against police in retaliation for the death of black men shot by police and, quote, did nothing to dissuade the ongoing violence and injury to police. Okay, so this, just to give you context, context. this shooting in, in Baton Rouge happened um, pretty close after the shooting that happened in Dallas, which also claimed the lives of police officials. Um, after that shooting in Dallas, there were a number of statements made by Black Lives Matter condemning the violence, um, speaking out against it, but it doesn't matter, right? And, and look, it's th- what happened to these cops was horrific. You read the details about what happened to this particular cop, and you know the fact that he will be permanently disabled uh, as a result of the shooting, and you feel sick to your stomach. But to say that. Black Lives Matter insulted this violence, I think is going a little far. And to say that they didn't do anything to dissuade the violence or speak out against it is just patently untrue. So the shooters were not in any way connected to Black Lives Matter. That should count for something. So you're just putting it on them because, I don't know, one group is black and the shooter was black. They, he had nothing to do with the group, but I don't know, I can't tell the difference. So I'm gonna say it's Black Lives Matter. Uh, second of all, uh, the shooter in Dallas was actively rejected by several African American groups that he applied to. They're like, no, dude, there's something wrong with you. And and they didn't take him in. Doesn't matter, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Well, I mean, he was black, he shot at cops. You're black and you care uh, to make sure that cops actually serve the community. Uh, hence, you must be guilty. Okay, so that's guilt by association. It has a clear racial component. And most importantly, I think it's un-American uh, to say <clears throat> you shouldn't speak out on an issue that's important. And if you do, I'll sue you because I'll claim that your legitimate words on those issues that are political, First Amendment protected, all of that, I don't care. I will claim it led to violence in other areas to shut you up and to make sure that you don't have those First Amendment rights. 
I thought conservatives were really, really concerned about debate in this country and First Amendment rights. And they wanted to make sure that everyone got a chance to speak. It turns out, well, for some of them, when it comes to Black Lives Matter, no, no, no. And, and look, it's, it's definitely true when it comes to back, uh, Black Lives Matter. But there is this insane effort by the right wing in the country to go after anyone who wants to challenge authority, who wants to speak out, who wants to protest. Think about the fact that there were bills, uh, state bills proposed indicating that, hey, if there are protesters blocking the street and a driver happens to accidentally run over some of them, well, it should be okay, right? I mean, that's that's the kind of intimidation tactic that's being used by by people in power. Forget the right wing, people in power who don't want individuals to use their First Amendment right to speak out, and that's that's a trend that we're seeing. It goes further than Black Lives Matter. This is why I've always wanted to be a cop, so I can criminalize and get in your stroll, the shit in your mold and take a toll. A displaced, dark face is safe as an ace in a hole for a cop. As good as I, a book a guy for drinking crooked eye. Don't resist. A- Chicago has once again agreed to dole out big bucks to pay for the actions of an abusive cop. But there's an even more explosive revelation. Lawyers for the victims say this officer also owned web domains with highly offensive racist titles. CBS2 political reporter Derek Blakely has more in this original report. It's just the experience. Um, the, the pain that I suffered, I have to, I have to try to push past this, but it's hard. Back in 2014, medical assistant Patassa Johnson was driving home on the Eisenhower when she was pulled over by a state trooper for allegedly driving drunk, taken to the 11th district, and allegedly beaten by CPD Sergeant George Granius. You know, I'm in the handcuffs. I could not protect myself. I went into the corner, and I squatted down and this man was just beating me beating you with his with his fist a beating so bad her injuries documented on video at cook county jail i have bruises everywhere and then when he hit me one time in my side here i end up urinating on myself bruises on her arms cuts and scratches on her back this is from kicking okay so there's that bruise there what other injuries do you have and big bruises on her thigh and on her lower leg. A beating so bad, it led to a federal lawsuit. She was beat up at the police station by a Chicago police sergeant because she was a vocal black woman. But perhaps more disturbing, Schiller's legal team uncovered websites with racist names owned by Granius. Names like inworddown.com, inwordguns.com, and inwordrific.com. His hobby is apparently buying names of racist websites. The city won't confirm Granius owned the website, but Schiller says... I can tell you this, there's been no denial that these websites were owned by the sergeant. That discovery, says Schiller, led City Hall to settle the case for $185,000. But that's little comfort to Johnson. He needs to be fired. If he's fired, then I'm happy. Because I know he will not be able to do it to anyone else. Chicago police have opened an internal investigation into the websites owned by Sergeant Granius. Meantime, all charges against Johnson have been dropped, with her settlement awaiting approval by the city council. In the newsroom, Derek Blakely, CBS2 News. Derek, thank you. And this evening, CBS2 contacted Sergeant Granius. He declined comment on the pending abuse settlement and on ownership of the offensive websites.
A man in Portland, Oregon was arrested and charged with a hate crime. His name is Frederick Nolan Sorrell, and he allegedly harassed a Muslim couple from his car for more than 20 blocks, during which time he allegedly made multiple attempts to strike the victim's vehicle. He also made pointing hand gestures that were said to be resembling pulling the trigger of a gun. And shouted things like, take off your effing burqa, this is America, and go back to your effing country. Now, um, he did get arrested, uh, and there was a local news station, KGW, it's a TV station in Portland, that caught up with him right after his arraignment and asked him a few questions. And he seems somewhat remorseful. Take a look. I never tried to run into them, I was just going to work. I never tried to follow them. I never tried to make contact with them after the fact. I shouldn't be laughing. I'm no, sorry. no, I'm no. Sorry. There's no way. That was way too funny. Uh, so, look, I, I think his uh, apology was heartfelt because of some other quotes that yeah. I. But I'm so glad that that station will put the link up to their whole report in the yeah. description box. Caught up with them because that shit was funny. It was <laughs> okay. funny. It was funny. Because, um, and I'll tell you why. Because. At the moment, he's a tough guy, okay? Like, yeah. oh, you're your burka, you go off to your country. And then when he realizes, oh, running them off the road is illegal and I might go to jail, but <laughs> so the next time somebody's a tough guy, remember that face. So he contradicted himself while he was talking to the television station because in that video, obviously, he's kind of denying guilt. However, he later on said this. I guess my fear and paranoia, I just yelled out. I don't go on social media looking to hate on people. I guess my ignorance and my stupidity is why I opened my mouth and I shouldn't have said, I shouldn't have, and I claim full responsibility. So that's a great apology. Yeah, it is. And so, so he's not rich. Some PR person didn't write that apology for him. That was real. So maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm getting suckered by it. And then he, as soon as, if he doesn't get jail time, he's back out to yelling at Muslims or whatever. But that to me felt like, Man, that was so stupid, and I am beginning to realize why that was so ignorant. Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe through this experience, we don't know enough, but that apology and all the other things I read about him made me believe that maybe this experience made him realize, oh, right, the Americans, like everybody else, that was so stupid of me. Why did I get wrapped up in that moment of, of, of hatred. But look, in Oregon, and of course everywhere, but you gotta take it super seriously. He did that just a couple of days after that guy stabbed a couple of people for defending Muslims. Yes, a man so on guy. public transportation stabbed and killed two individuals that were speaking up and protecting a Muslim woman on the train. So yeah. yeah. It, it, that was a really dumb thing for Sorrell to do, and look, I'm glad he's remorseful. And I feel a little bad, a little bad, laughing at the fact that he was crying like that. But I mean, yeah, and it's look, that's to me, that's good enough justice because he's got to live with that. And uh, and he said, I'm sorry, I blurted out what I blurted out, my paranoia, my fear, and so that to me seems like a real recognition of of what he was doing wrong. Now, I'm not the judge and jury in Oregon, and they'll decide what to do with him. And it is pretty serious if he was trying to run him off the road, and that could have a lot of consequences. But I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. I think he learned from it. And if we all have conversations around these things, and we all learn from it, and as a country, we grow from it, that's not such a bad thing.
All new at six, a Memphis woman says she was called an offensive racial stereotype by her own doctor. She says that he called her Aunt Jemima, not once, but twice. So WMC Action News 5's Felicia to the woman and tracked down the Bartlett doctor to hear his side. A trip to see her dermatologist left Lexi Carter in tears. I haven't... Uh... I haven't really been able to deal with this. I don't, I, it's just the most horrible feeling, really. Uh, I'm trying to, I try to understand it. I don't understand it. It's not what Dr. James Turner did on July 11th, but what he said that has her traumatized. So I was just sitting there waiting to be seen, and he walked in. He had a young girl, a physician's uh, assistant trainee or student with him. And he looked at me and he goes, hi, Aunt Jamama. She says he didn't apologize for the remark at the time, and he said it more than once. It, it was an insult, a racial, ethnic insult, a joke. Um, uh, it, it's putting me on the level of someone who is subservient. Thursday, Dr. Turner admitted to the comments. In a statement, he says, quote, Ms. Carter is one of our very dear patients and has been for years. She is one of many African-American patients, and I count it a privilege to be their doctor. Anything I said that tarnishes that image and my respect for her was a misspoken blunder on my part and was not intended to show disrespect for Ms. Carter. I'm very sorry for that misunderstanding, end quote. But for Carter, that apology comes a little too late. And she plans on filing a formal complaint with the state medical board. And I feel like if he'll do that to me, he'll do that to anybody. And Memphis Felicia Bolton, WMC Action News. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. How do you accidentally call someone Aunt Jemima twice? Compensatory call-in. Today's date, Saturday, July 15th, every Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Compensatory call-in. If you have thoughts, uh, maybe you have accidentally called someone Aunt Jemima. Feel free to dial in. Uh, the number, 641-715-3640. The code, 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. That number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. A couple things before we get to the callers. Uh, we are listener-supported, counter-racist radio. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Visit the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. When you hit the blog, PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you're not into PayPal, 
drop us an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. Uh, you can also support. Uh, you can hit the wish list at Amazon.com. It is under Gus T. Renegade. Uh, again, at Amazon.com under Gus T. Renegade. Thanks to all the folks uh, who have uh, supported the program uh, for eight and a half years. Uh, we have been listener supported. Uh, hopefully, uh, we have been a resource for victims of white supremacy to get accurate information uh, about what racism, white supremacy is, how it works, what it means to be classified as white. That said, we will be here tomorrow. Global Sunday talk on racism. Uh, We'll have listeners from all over the globe. Uh, It will be early, obviously, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. Uh, Tune in if you want to take advantage, ask questions uh, to non-white people on uh, in different parts of the globe. Uh, Certainly much could be said about the uh, different items, different news things, reports that happened over the past uh, seven days. I'll leave uh, commentary. You all can can share that, speak to that. I specifically want to discuss the book club or, or book discussion uh, visit that we had in Seattle, Washington on Thursday of this week. Uh, Dr. Vanessa Grubbs. Uh, she is a lovely, intelligent black female. Uh, she is actually a medical doctor. Uh, kidney doctor and uh, she was here to talk about her new book hundreds of interlaced fingers and this book is about her husband who is a black male it's about her husband Uh, he was having kidney failure needed a kidney transplant uh, and because you know this is someone that she cared a lot about she wanted to know more about why he was having such difficulty with this process, why it was taking so long, just why was this, you know, journey so difficult for him. And of course, racism, white supremacy was a factor in all that. So that's what she wrote this book about. And I, if you've been listening to the cows, you just heard me play a segment on uh, Dr. Grubb. She did an interview on NPR with the, I mean, literally within the last two weeks, she did this interview. The book just came out within the last couple of weeks. And uh, I went out to Lake Forest Park, which is in Seattle. Uh, It is a very white area of Seattle, which is saying a lot for a city and a state that are notoriously white to begin with to say that this is a really white area of Seattle. It is. So I was there on Sunday, a week ago tomorrow. I was there and I saw that she was going to be at this bookstore, third place books. I'd never heard of it. I'd never even been to this part of Seattle in my life until a week ago. Uh, I see that she's going to be there and I'm just stunned because we were just talking about this on the program and it's about racism and here. And I can really, I, I think I talked about this moment, what galvanized everything for me. I had my cow shirt on my cows t-shirt for long time listeners, uh, black t-shirt. We were selling them. They're listeners who have the shirt. Some of the folks in different parts of the world have the shirt. It says, please respect me. Like I am a white person. That's what the shirt says. And I've had it for five years now. Every time that I have worn it, uh, people comment. It has sparked dialogue about racism, but I had that shirt on in Lake Forest Park, Seattle, Washington. 
And I'm looking at this event. I'm looking around. It's all white people. And they are not looking inviting and welcoming like, oh, we're so glad that you came to our area, our community uh, on this beautiful Sunday afternoon. Shop at the farmer's market. Get some bread. Have some vegetables. Get some Washington cherries. No, it was. What is this nigga doing here? When are you leaving? Do you know what? <laughs> like, that is the type of look that I felt the white gaze. It was wow. It was intense. It was palpable. And so I'm looking at this. I'm taking all this in and you're going to have Dr. Vanessa Grubbs come out here in this environment and talk about this particular book. Uh, and just for folks who, you know, to give a, a little bit more background, this is like way far. This is not close to downtown Seattle. There's so many spots. Seattle's a big city. They could have easily had this in a more accessible location. They could have had this at the University of Washington if they wanted a more intimate setting. There are tons of bookstores all over the city of Seattle. Seattle is notorious for being a city of readers. Uh, so they have lots and lots and lots of independent bookstores and public libraries. There are many other locations that would have been easier to get to, more accessible, and in environments that might have given more non-white people access to this presentation. All of that factored into my decision that I am going to attend this event, even though I knew it was going to cost me substantially uh, because this is not close <laughs> to my part of Seattle. This is way far north. And the time this is at seven in the evening we would normally be doing workplace racism at that time so i'm going to have to make adjustments with the program it's just going to make my day way busier and i have a deadline i had an article uh due for atlanta black star friday morning uh which i did not have one word uh written by the time this was going to be starting so i had that looming as well like you know to do this it's going to cost substantially both before in rearranging and the program and what you're going to have to do and Afterwards, meaning you're going to have to work substantially harder to compensate to make sure that you get this report done on time and of quality. I still said I'm going to go because there's no way that they're going to sit up here in this ultra white Seattle environment with this particular topic, with this black author and pussyfoot about racism. I go to the event. We end workplace racism early. I run upstairs. I get to the event. I miss maybe the first five minutes. I sit down and I'm listening. Nothing about racism. I'm still kind of holding out hope that, well, maybe they got racism out of the way really, really fast in the first five minutes. Like they, they did the, the introduction, who she is, her name, the book. Maybe they read a quick snippet and they did all this tough racism stuff at the very beginning. And as I listen and listen and listen, I, I begin to think, no, maybe that's not the case. Maybe they're just not talking about racism at all. Why Gus T was in attendance. Soon as they go to the Q&A, I ask the very first question. Uh, and this and this is online. Uh, I uploaded the audio to this discussion uh, Friday evening. So this is available online. You should be able to access it at iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you normally access uh, the cows broadcast. I'm going to upload it to blog talk, uh, black talk radio network as well. So you'll be able to access it there, but wherever you normally get the cows content, it should be available so you can hear. But I asked, I got the very first question when they went to the Q and a, uh, and I asked how she would compare Harriet Washington's medical apartheid to her own work. Uh, hundreds of interlaced fingers, uh, given that Harriet Washington documents the long history 
of consumption of black bodies. Question number one. Er, and it's in the, uh, in the audio. You can get it. And so the expression, which you, didn't, you will not get, the expression that I got on her face uh, and judging from the comments that people left at SoundCloud, she seemed nervous. Uh, it seemed like, oh, God. <laughs> uh, why did I? If people have seen the Dave Chappelle skit where uh, he is imitating George Bush and he goes to the press to ask a question and somebody in the audience asks a question about the oil and it's like, oh, God, why did I even call him? <laughs> it was like a low-key version of that, like, oh. We were going so pleasant and we weren't going to rankle the white audience. It was mostly white people in the audience. I think there were maybe four, I'll say five, five non-white people in an audience of maybe 30 to 40 people. So she, she goes to answer the question. She does not give any detail uh, for about Harriet Washington's work. Or confirmation of, yes, long, undeniable history of exploitation, violation, and consumption of black people, black bodies in life and in death. Uh, She does give some detail. She does talk about the disparity in transplants. She talks about some of her previous scholarship on this subject matter in terms of black people donating organs, uh, but not receiving organs at the same rate. Uh, And in fact, black people's organs being harvested where white people are getting a disproportionate amount uh, of these organs. Think of uh, the young man in Georgia, Kendrick Johnson, many other cases as well. Uh, So she answers the question, not super, super detailed, you know, like we would want on the cows, but she does answer the question. You can hear what she said in the audio. Go on to other people uh, who ask their questions, not really talking about racism. There was a non-white, non-black female in the audience. She did ask a question. I think the term she used was discrimination. I think perhaps, again, this is in the audio. She, uh, Dr. Grubbs, answered the question. Uh, I got the last question in because I wanted to come back because I felt like she was using terms like racial bias and sensitivity training because she talked about an example where she did a conference and she talked about a patient having certain symptoms and she didn't give the race of a patient. And apparently some people got upset and they were saying, Oh no, 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 no. Based on racial classifications, you know, a person of this race would have, you know, these symptoms and this is the problem. And a person of this race would have these symptoms and these problems and just going down the line. And she was just saying that that is, you know, that is total nonsense. And that is, that is how we have all been trained uh, because of racism. So I go to ask another question and say, you know, Hey, I don't think this is an issue of diversity. I don't think this is racial bias. Uh, Let's, you know, Oprah Winfrey's latest project, Henrietta Lacks, Uh, And the consumption uh, of black bodies, there's a lot of evidence that this has been, you know, deliberate, you know, in terms of we are feasting on. And so she interrupted me. I didn't even get to finish my question. She interrupted me and didn't answer it at all. Like it was total pussyfooting. Uh, You know, people would be saying you just even though this is a victim of racism, black female would be saying, hey, Dr. Grubbs, you're just using buckets of words. Let's stop pussyfooting. Answer the question. And she, in my view, she knew she was not answering the question, which she conceded uh, at the end. She said, uh, am I answering your question? I probably didn't. And she laughed. We talked about the laughter. You'll hear all this in the audio. And they ended the Q&A at that point. They said it's been about an hour. Want to make time to sign books. And, uh, you know, we'll wrap it up here. And the audience clapped. Now, I ended the audio here. I wish I hadn't. I didn't know 
you know, how long I was going to be there. There was so much going on. I had a deadline for an essay. I was quite a significant way from being at my residence. Uh, It was just lots. I hadn't even uploaded the audio for workplace racism. I hadn't checked the audio for the recording that I just did. It was lots going on. I think there were cows, listeners in attendance. I didn't know if I was going to get a chance to say hi to them or what have you. It was lots and lots and lots uh, going on. And I wanted to talk to Dr. Grubbs myself. So I'm waiting in line. White people come to me and I have my cow shirt on. It just so happened. I did laundry in between. I've moved. So I'm washing sheets and everything. And I washed my cow shirt after I wore it on Sunday. And so I just grabbed. I'm not into, you know, a whole lot of fashion. I grabbed in my drawer and it was clean. It was available to wear again. And I said, do I do it? Yes, we're going to wear it again. So I have my cow shirt on again and I'm standing waiting and white people are now coming to me. And a white woman with her husband, I, you know, I, I suspect, uh, come to me and she says, uh, what do you think can be done, you know, so that black people or I think she might have said people of color, whatever, are not, you know, suspicious about about donating organs. And I said, well, do you think? Black people should be suspicious <laughs> about donating. I pulled the white move. I answered with a question. And she says, oh, yeah, of course, of course, of course, certainly. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I'm I'm just saying, you know, it, it could be helpful. And, you know, even black people need organs. Just, you know, what what do you think can be said? And I said, well, I don't think there's anything you could say to me, ma'am, <laughs> like I wouldn't do it. And she says, oh, yeah, of course, you know, yeah, I understand, I understand. And, you know, I'm just I'm just saying, you know, I, I got an, an organ uh, donated to me myself and. You know, it's it's just uh, it's such a tough issue because there is there's such a long history and racism and, and her husband interrupts and he says, or I, my apologies, I don't know if this was her husband. This was just someone I suspect of being a racist, some guy who was with her. He interrupts and he says, uh, you know, it's it's just so difficult to talk about this. And I say, excuse me, why, why is it difficult to talk about this? And he says, oh, well, you know, you know, it's, uh, I'm a white guy. And, you know, I mean, oh man, these things, they happened. You know, I can't deny that it's, it's terrible. And, you know, I just, I just, oh man, I, I didn't do it myself, but I know it happened. And, oh man. And, uh, so he goes, and then this other white guy comes up and he's like, oh yeah, thank you so much for your questions. And yeah, we, we need to talk about this. My gosh, it's so important. And, and, uh, and so I'm waiting and waiting and people are getting their books signed. Line is dwindling down while all this is happening. Finally get up to Dr. Grubbs, black female, gorgeous uh, black female. And she says, here, my militant. <laughs> and uh, we, we've talked about that term on the program. This is why I said I, I so wish I had continued recording. I just didn't know. I, I did not anticipate. I thought, you know, they applauded. We were done. I was just going to go talk really quick and be on my way. So she's my militant. Yes. Um, with the questions, I appreciated what you what you asked. And did I answer your question with a laugh? She says, did I answer your question? I said, no, no, you didn't. She says, and I quote, I had planned not to talk about racism. And I stop again in my mind. I flash back to the moment when I saw that this event was going to happen to begin with. I thought this is about what would happen uh, if Gus T. Renegade was not in attendance. And I said, wait a minute. I thought, 
I thought a big part of your book was about racism, that, you know, your black husband having difficulty getting a kidney because of racism. And she said, oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> that is. And I said, uh, but you, I'm just kind of in my mind. I'm just uh, big sigh like, man, man, this is a big part of the problem. She's a victim of racism. I mean, we respond to how we respond, but this is a big part of the problem. This is a big part of the reason the cows exists in the first place. Listener supported too many times, almost every time when we come out to talk about this subject matter, when anybody comes out to talk about this subject matter, this is what happens. It's not even a matter of people not using the accu most accurate terms. There's no discussion at all. Like we're not even making an effort to talk about the central problem in the known universe, the central reason, in my in my opinion, the primary reason that your husband is in danger or was, thankfully, was in danger of dying, not getting this organ is white supremacy, racism, not lazy black people, not black people, not donating kidneys, not black people can't put their crack pipe down long enough to take care of themselves. No white people terrorizing us. Medical apartheid. Harriet A. Washington. Top five. Gus T. Renegade. At any rate, she gave me her card. I asked her if she would be willing to come on the radio program. A white person heard that they were spying on me and listening to my uh my conversation with her, like radio program, what radio program are you on? I should have just pointed at the shirt, man. Um, but she said she'd be willing to come on the radio program uh, to do the interview. I did have some reservations because I felt like now it would be a very different interview. It wouldn't just be, you know, we can polite ch chat it up about, you know, the book. Uh, it would be about, you know, what happened in Seattle here. But at any rate. Check it out if you are interested. The audio, it is posted. It's at SoundCloud. It's on iTunes. You can download it. It's about an hour long. Wow. Uh, if any of the folks who were present for that discussion uh, at Third Place Books this past Thursday, uh, if you have commentary, feel free. Or folks who were able to listen to the audio, feel free uh, to chime in. I can only say it is so, so important that we not be spectators. It is critically important that you not study white supremacy, racism, and whatever conclusions and analysis that you come up with, you just sit around with that. It is critically important to get out, to share, to engage, particularly with other non-white people. Uh, it's just the impact that you can have, and I have seen this repeatedly, just the impact that you can have being in attendance at functions like these. And it doesn't even have to be something as formal as that where you can just ask a question. You don't have to give up, get up and give a long speech uh, or anything of that nature. Sometimes you can just be present and ask a question and that can completely change the dynamic of a conversation uh, or the way that people are thinking about a particular subject matter critically important get out ask questions that's one thing if you're a cows listener ask questions there should never be a time that a cows listener and that's gus included there should never be a time that we are in attendance for any function of that manner and they have a q and a session i think that q stands for question there should be no time with a cows listener present 
and you don't have one. I mean, you should at least have just on hand questions. Uh, What do white people talk about when there are no white people present? Just what's your definition for racism? Simple things, simple things that you can ask. You should have at least one question prepared to ask in a setting like that. Just asking a question can completely change the dynamic of a conversation. I'll stop there. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. If you could please not have a lot of background noise. If you know you're in a noisy environment, if you could use your mute button, that would be great. Uh, If you, you know, you can just unmute yourself so you can talk, say whatever you need to say and then mute. That way we don't have a lot of distortion in the broadcast and exclusively for the compensatory call in. If we could not use metaphor, I think Crystal Tyler, the tacky race soldier that she is. I think she was using quite a few metaphors during her visit this past uh, week. Always say interrogate them for this broadcast. If we could just be explicit, direct with what it is that we want to say. A lot of times racists, they use metaphors like Crystal Tyler. They use metaphors to practice racism and be deceptive. A lot of times non-white people, we are just we're still learning. We're trying to articulate ourselves. Sometimes we use metaphors and they end up creating a lot of confusion. If we could just be direct and explicit, that would be grand. Uh, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Feel free. Yeah, hello. Uh, I'm a caller from uh, Texas. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, I've been listening to your broadcast for a very long time. How long? Uh, my first episode I heard was with uh, Tim Wise was being interviewed by you, and he went on a long soliloquy with Justice, who was only 11 or 10, and uh, and uh, so it was that long ago. And what led me to your broadcast was an incident at work, and uh, I had to really start looking at white people carefully. Uh, and when I Googled racism your broadcast came up and i haven't listened that long and uh my book collection swelled mr fuller dr well dr amos wilson on and on and on and i have been doing my own uh experiments but like you said you can't be a spectator about it and I, I didn't really think I was being a spectator. I just didn't think that what I was uh, seeing, no one would get. But now, now um, I have other people that I've shared with, and they're starting to grow because of it. So I feel I have to share it. Um, what I noticed was that we tend to use the language that they educate us with to analyze them with. And it was Dr. Ine's book, uh, Urugu, that, that really struck a chord with me. We have to start using our own senses to see what they respond to and create 
the language. Mr. Fuller says the same thing too. Create the language that reflects our reality in dealing with white people. And over the years, I started to do that. You start to realize that it's mathematics. They respond precisely to the same stimuli. They say exactly the same thing. They are all the same. And there's no difference in any of them other than opportunity to violate you. Their desire to do so is 100%. From what I've seen, and the key is to never lie to yourself about what you observe from them. And always share with others who are also observing them and have the boldness to uh, to speak to it. And uh, I just wanted to say that. And thank you for your bro- <laughs> thank you for your broadcast. Over the years, I have uh, um, you know uh, contributed to your Amazon list and little subtle small things here and there. I may have called once or twice over the years, but I really appreciate this broadcast. And again, thank you. Wonderful. Always great to hear from uh, an investor. I hope it's been worthy of your time and energy, and especially that is music. Well, I will not use the metaphors. I always think it is highly constructive uh, to hear victims of racism saying that they are conducting experiments to test their thoughts, observations, see if they can come to some firm conclusions. That is outstanding uh maybe you can share more detail down the uh as we uh move forward if you you know find it constructive to call in again uh let's see other folks who dialed in who have a hand up uh if we've not heard from you uh line should be open feel free may i be heard yes ma'am greetings everyone this is ari um i just wanted to share a little i was able to attend the book discussion that happened this past thursday on dr gross's new book as you mentioned, hundreds of interlaced fingers. Um, I got there like five minutes early, and uh, I I kind of thought I was late because, um, like, I already saw them talking, but the mic wasn't on. But as I got closer, I realized, like, her and the white lady were just talking. Um, so I kind of sat, like, in the back, but then I just realized as I was just looking around and they still didn't start, they said they are going to give, wait five more minutes at seven because there's traffic or whatever. So I was like, Screw this, I'm going to move up and sit right in front of her. So I was in the corner. Um, so I just wanted to specifically share from a non-white girl's view who's a victim of racism and white supremacy, and mainly because it was held in an area I grew up in until about a couple years ago. I moved to South Seattle. I'll keep this short, under five minutes. I'm a more recent cows listener and new to counter-racist logic, thought, speech, and action. That being said, my main purpose was to attend and observe, that this, as this was only the second attempt at attending something constructive like this, or maybe like the third that's outside of my day-to-day encounters um, with these people here. I admit I was unprepared. I went there sort of blindly, so I didn't have any questions ready. I do agree with you, Gus, that we should have them ready. Unfortunately, I fell short. It's true that this is a very, very white area, Washington is in general, but um, this specific location that I grew up around, um, like eight minutes away, took me driving um, Lake Forest Park, which is coincidentally um, the author that you mentioned, Octavia Butler, the science fiction author, she passed away in Lake Forest Park. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, anyways, um, 
Yeah, uh, there was only about four or five non-white people that I noticed. Um, from the little that I did know by reading the synopsis and listening to her NPR interview, um, I assumed she was going to talk about the racial disparities in kidney transplants and how, quote-unquote, biased the system was. But like you mentioned, uh, I was kind of sitting there waiting, like, did I miss something or are they about to or am I just not listening? Um, but um, I quickly observed that wasn't what she was about to do. Silly me. Um, I know you mentioned that was your whole point of attending because of the location being really white and the central theme in the book is racism. Um, and yet they didn't talk about racism at all, really. They kind of pussyfooted around it. You were right. Most importantly, very logical. That's where I was confused. I'm sure my unpreparedness contributed contributed to this, but I'm still glad I attended for compensatory purposes. It really was a superficial discussion, uh, besides the questions you posed, Gus, um, where she pussyfooted a bit, especially at your last question when you asked what her response was, that this isn't a problem of racial biases or that people are just not well-informed or just operating off these assumptions that these are deliberate continuation of exploring black bodies. Um, and right after that, when it came time for book signing, I thought of something to ask her. And before she signed my book, I asked if she had any advice or recommendations for black people who are going through the same experiences as her husband did as far as having kidney disease, kidney failure, or someone that's needing a transplant or just someone knowing someone going through a similar situation, how to deal with racism when going through the doctors and other medical professionals. Um, her response was prevention, taking care of your body to avoid the doctors and hospitals is the best thing you can do. And um, she lastly said to just ask a lot of questions and also just mentioned again to stay healthy. But um, from our long discussion and after her response, uh, response to my question, I was hoping she could have given more insight to my questions, and she's currently in practice as a nephrologist, and that's what her book is about. Um, I actually started reading her book, and it starts on the second chapter. She um, brings up that she started the Office of Diversity Affairs um, in Oakland, and as you read on more in the pages, she kind of talks about, like, colorism issues within her family. Um, I won't go into that. Like, I'm, like, it's not a, it was not a bad read, so it's kind of moving by pretty quickly. So I just thought that was even more interesting um, in retrospect after I attended the discussion. Um, I witnessed my boyfriend's father pass away from ultimately cancer, and he did have kidney failure and was going through dialysis. Also, my uncle, who lives in Alaska, um, who was currently on a waiting list for a donor last year, um, they called him, they told him to get on an emergency flight, they set it all up, his insurance, from Alaska to Seattle, um, they told him they found one they, um, and got him on a flight here. Um, when he got here, that's not how it went down. They said it, was, they, it wasn't a match. Um, I suspect racism went supremacy. I specifically asked her how to deal with racism when you're already in an irreversible situation. Um, but like I said, at the end of the hour-long discussion and not, not even being prepared, I had sense um, she wasn't going to talk about it. Uh, that's why it prompted my question. Even though I feel like she didn't answer my question or yours, it was still constructive for me. Um, this was just white people's time to show up and make sure everything's in order around the residence and that nothing too black is going on. Uh, that's all I have for now. Uh, thanks for listening. Right. Great insight. Great insight. I when I was processing the event, 
she was being questioned by a white medical doctor. I don't uh, remember her name. I'm sure she said it at the beginning. I wasn't there. I was ending the workplace racism program, but I would have like mandatory if you're at an event like that. And even if there is a black person who's the main speaker, if there is a white person on the stage or what have you, there should be a question for the white person. I would have had to ask her, how did you moderate this event? If you read the whole book and you didn't have one question about racism, I would have had to ask her that because that's because she was another one that was around cackling after this event ended. Like, Oh yes, those were great questions. So glad it was one like, that's your job. You should. That should have been one of the first questions that you ask, because that's one of the main themes in the book. Another way, uh, white people practice racism, white supremacy. The white host should have been the first one to say, what, Dr. Grubbs? What do you mean you're going to come here and not talk about racism? That's the main part of the book. That would mean, <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, she should have been the first line of defense to say, excuse me, she should have been the first person to say, no, we're going to do justice to your book. We're going to do justice to your black husband and to you because she donated the kidney to save her husband's life. We're going to do justice to the sacrifice that you made. We're going to tell the story honestly, talk about your book honestly. And that means we're going to talk about racism honestly. So let's get to doctor. That's exactly what the white woman shouldn't do. She didn't do that. That's an act of racism, too. Uh, Other folks that we have not heard from uh, line should be open. Are they doing the uh, sp- <laughs> people are spectating again, the uh, hands up and uh, not not speaking? Do we have that again? May I be heard? Oh, oh. Go ahead. I'll wait. Thank you. Um, this is the um, good evening, Gus, and um, to all the callers and the listeners. This is a female caller from New York. Um, so let's just start with uh, I listened to the broadcast of uh, Crystal Tyler and it was exhausting. I believe that she did a very, uh, you know, as Dr. Welting would say, give white people an A plus. She did an excellent job at draining black people, which she does 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as long as the, you know, as long as, uh, the universe is, is popping. She does that with her child and with her uh, husband. So I know this was especially exciting for her to get a chance to have an entire audience to um, psychically drain and consume. Um, basically, all I had to um, uh, comment was on um, Gus, your experience. Um, and I could be very, very wrong about this, but... I suspect that the reason why, and I haven't, you know, heard any of this of this uh, author's other lectures or anything. Um, I suspect that the reason why um, she may not directly address the racism, particularly um, with her white audiences, is you know because no one would invite her back. I mean. Um, if this was something that was, uh, uh, you know, it's like, uh, again, like Dr. Wilson says, nobody wants to talk about racism. And, you know, and when you're going places and you're speaking on your, your material, um, 
you're going to, um, you, and you want to be invited places, you're going to, you know, talk the lingo, You're gonna, especially in front of a, an audience like that. You're not going to do that. Um, so that may be the reason why um, you won't hear about that very, very, very important component of her work. And I just wanted to echo what the um, uh, previous caller who was in the audience said, um, that the author did tell her which is true, uh, we have to take care of ourselves. Um, I'm of the opinion that we, should, we need to be putting them out of business by taking care of ourselves because um, it's been my experience that um, the whole industry is, is not something that's geared toward uh, finding a cure. It's just about treating. And, you know, with our history, with black people's history, um, uh, obtaining, getting, or um, seeking out adequate health care. I mean, but this is not something that's been beneficial to us. I recently had a um, experience in um, the emergency room here in South Carolina. And, you know, back in New York, some of the emergency rooms, not all of them, some of them in certain areas have improved with regard to wait times and in the emergency room, but here in South Carolina, you know, forget it, it's still the same. So after a couple of hours in there um, with my child, um, who, and I noticed that the uh, white staff that was there, the triage folk, they weren't, they were, and it was, this is a predominantly black area. And, you know, all of the, everybody in the ER was black. And they were not taken seriously at all. I mean, at all. The triage nurse, when you would call names and he's smiling at you and making jokes, hey, you know, what's going on again? What and just, you know, ha, 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 you know, and I'm looking at him like, my child is in pain, and you want to talk to him about the character on his T-shirt? So he's like, oh, you know, yeah, you, oh, your mom, you know, so, you know, and how's, how's this, uh, you know, is this your kid? I said, he's a young man, and uh, he needs to be, um, he needs uh, some treatment because he's in pain. And he's all, you know, oh, you know, where are you from? Uh, you know, none of this matters. None of this matters. But they don't take us seriously. No matter what, you know. I saw a woman, a black woman coming in there, clutching her chest in a wheelchair. You know, her two black males escorted her, and she was an elderly black lady. You know, they, they rushed her to the back, closed the door. I don't know what they did. Then stuck her right back out in the waiting room to sit there and wait with everybody else. Okay, so does like I said, what the previous caller um, said about um, the author saying that we need to just take care of ourselves. Um, there's an excellent movie that I ran across recently. I haven't heard anything negative about it, but I I found it to be pretty constructive. It's called What the Hell, and um, it kind of breaks down exactly what this whole cancer and um, diabetes epidemic or, you know, any kind of illnesses you have are all about and who's funding it, why it's being funded, and who's in whose pocket. So I would suggest that everybody, it's on YouTube, it's called What the Health. If you could just take a look at it, I think that, it, you know, it has some pretty constructive information for us, especially as black people, so we can just avoid that entire industry altogether. And um, that's all I had. Thank you, Gus, for listening. Thank you for taking my call. Take care now. Yes, ma'am. 
other folks who dialed in with a hand up have come. Oh my goodness, I forgot. I just couldn't let it pass on this program given the commentary and talking about medical apartheid. One of my top five books. It does astound me at times that people write me and ask for books. I feel like we've mentioned books all the time on this program. <laughs> like books that have been mentioned today. Uh, I can't even count how many books have been mentioned, Dan. You got all different types. Uh, science fiction, Octavia Butler was mentioned, and nonfiction with Dr. Grubbs and Dr. Welsing and Dr. Marimba Ani and Dr. Amos Wilson. I mean, how could you possibly be missing books? Medical Apartheid, Harriet A. Washington, Top 5, Gus T. Renegade. Um, the last sound clip with the black female where she went to the doctor's office and was called Aunt Mama twice. Does that possibly contribute to why black people have such a difficult time? Medical apartheid, kidney problems, Henrietta Lacks, does that possibly? And does that possibly make us think maybe this is deliberate if they're just looking at us as an Aunt Mama? I mean, I can't even imagine like what his waiting room is like when he goes out and sees black people like, uh, oh my, it's nigger Jamma. Come on back here. Rasta, come on. Can't wait to check your blood. I mean, that's what it is. And can't wait to, hmm, nice organ. Need those kidneys. Get those up off of Rasta. And that's, I mean, that sounds about, that's what I would expect in a system of white supremacy. And if anything, I would hope that we get to a point where, if anything, that is, thank you for the reminder. I'm going to be more aggressive in my search for a black healthcare professional and use this experience to make sure that I encourage as many black children as I possibly can to be doctors and to go into science. Because if you don't, this is what we will have to look forward to for any of our medical care going and come on in Rasta, aunt your mama, come on in. Can't wait to get your kidneys. I mean, check your blood pressure and make sure you're doing what that's what we'll be looking forward to until we solve this problem. Other folks we've not heard from. Hello? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. Thomas in New York. Um, I was en route to plantation, so I didn't get a chance to hear all of the clips. I heard the first few, and um, I did hear some of the commentary since uh, I chimed in. And, um, you know, a lot of what's, um, you know, you guys have been talking about with some of the stuff I have written down is my observations for the week. Um, and especially here at the hospital, um, just to put it in, it, put this person in context, there's a white doctor and uh, he works overnight shift in the emergency room, like the lady was just talking in the emergency room. And, um, you know, I, I work overnight shift too, so sometimes when I take a break, I go into the cafeteria and it's like this um, partition of plants and flowers that kind of, you can sit down in a chair and no one can see you. So I sit over there and charge my phone and take a nap or my break. And I saw this gentleman walking, but he couldn't see me because the partition's there. And he um, stopped, spread his legs and passed some gas. And then kept walking toward me Then he saw me. So then he decided after six months of working here, oh, he's going to speak to me now, I guess, because he was embarrassed. So, um, ever since then, um, this guy generally, um, likes to speak to me. So, um, he, uh, yesterday evening, 
there was two people that came into the hospital shot. So I wanted to find out some information on, you know, exactly, you know, what happened. So I saw him coming. So I, you know, just simply made small talk, you know, well, you guys are busy in the ER tonight. So he says, oh, yeah, you know, we got these uh, kids that came and shot. So I was, you know, he was, uh, he went on to talk about um, on July 3rd, um, there was uh, two young people that were shot. It was four all together. The two of them, one of them was 12, one of them was 10. And um, the, the, the person that, that I'm talking about, this doctor, he goes on to talk about the, um, the young kids. I said, oh, yeah, those kids were probably um, caught up in, you know, um, innocent bystanders. Oh, no, it's no innocent bystanders here. He said they were probably in the game. And I'm like, come on, they were 10 and 12. I doubt they were in a game. So they were outside 3 in the morning. Now, mind you, I was there that night when this happened. This happened at 11 at night. <laughs> this didn't happen at 2 in the morning. But just um, that Mike Brown, uh, he's the Hulk, you know, uh, all these kids. So he went on to proceed to tell me all these stories about, you know, a kid as young as 8 who was shot um, a couple of years ago. But he was in the game, too. And I, I, I'm like, I just find all this real hard to believe. But this is the doctors that's treating our people when they come in here. So this is the perception they already have of us. Um, other observations that I made, um, and I'll make it very brief. Um, I did watch an interview this week with um, Dr. Umar and Roland Martin. I don't know if you spoke about that or if you saw that interview. However, uh, I think this was, we just talked about books, uh, Malcolm X, um, you know, uh, one book in particular that stood out to me when Dr. Umar proceeded to call that person a coon. And I said, man, Dr. Umar, don't do that. I was screaming at the television. Why are you doing that? You're falling into their trap. And um, I kind of think he did, even though he, he handled himself quite well. But uh, once again, Gus always points out no name calling. Um, and why that brought me back to Malcolm X, because I think that was one of his crucial errors and communicating with people, and one of the reasons why later in his life he wasn't able to, I think, bring more people together because he had, in, um, in his defense, um, in defending himself in the Nation of Islam, offended so many people uh, with his commentary that I think that that played, played such a huge um, part in why he was not able to do more. Also, um, I felt like where um, ISIS book, you know, kind of Houston Colts, Ray Roland Martin, um, very, in my opinion, um, he, he tried to set um, Dr. Umar up and um, his commentary and um, even to go as far as to ask about his educational background and things of that nature on a television show that's funded by Viacom, you know, owned by Viacom. I mean, he's a journalist. You got an executive producer. Y'all should have known all of that before he even stepped. I mean, this guy has been all around the world telling us his credentials. Why didn't he just look him up? It, it kind of made feel like he was already trying to slight him as not being as being a fraud. Um, the last thing I wanted to add, um, once again, and not the most important thing uh, in our life is entertainment or sports per se. But I just found it very interesting that baseball spending so much so much time and effort to keep black people out of it, pricing us out the game, not funding little leagues all around the country. Uh, have now have a sport that can't get higher ratings than the NBA Summer League. 
I think that's very um, compelling. Uh, and I would, I really would like to see what they're going to do going forward. Um, if this is the case, if their their All Star game can't trim more than a, a summer league basketball game, then they're in big trouble. And I'm with my line thinking. Great point. Great point. Other folks we haven't heard from, context of white supremacy, please don't uh, wait till the last five minutes. Uh, the number again, 641-715-3640. And the code, 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Can I be heard? Can I be heard? Heard both of you. Uh, was that Emmy? Yes, it's me. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. Um, usually I would concede, but I'm like five minutes from having to walk into the plantation, so I kind of wanted to get this out before I get in there with the foolishness. Um, greetings, everybody. Thank you guys for taking my call. I'll uh, reiterate what the uh, man who spoke first said. Thank you very much for the broadcast. It's probably been a, a while since I said that, and I wanted to go ahead and put that on the record. I am extremely grateful for the cows and for the work that Gus has done. To the mother that spoke before, I'll have to uh, agree with you uh, without any reservation that the Crystal Tyler uh, episode was probably the most draining thing um, I've experienced in quite a while, and I've been kind of drained, um, and I couldn't finish it. I just couldn't. I was just like, you know what, this is just not for me right now, because um, it just was that draining, and I felt like she's a narcissist. Like, I can't diagnose her, but borderline narcissist, narcissistic personality, something, and she was just getting her supply met. Um, but moving on, I'm grateful for the Octavia Butler piece. Um, I will confess that I have a deep love for sci-fi and fantasy. Um, it took me a while to warm up to nonfiction, um, although I, it is now my favorite only because I want the information, but I'm an only child too, and uh, fiction in general, but specifically sci-fi fiction. Um, yeah, like being able to go to an entirely new world, I have an an imagination, like a vivid imagination. So, um, and I would read sci-fi, some of the other sci-fi, and it was always white. And when I um, encountered Octavia Butler's work, um, she had already passed, but I fell in love. Um, and I, it's just her writing style, um, the imagery, some of the things that she's saying, I really, really uh, like. And just for any young people, I'm going to state that even if you're younger, like if you just need a break and you want to stretch your imagination, then, of course, fiction, sci-fi, Octavia Butler, these particular books, which I'll mention. But first and foremost, get that um, facts. So read nonfiction. Read nonfiction. Make yourself like nonfiction. But if you're going to dabble in the other one, Octavia Butler is, I think, a wonderful, wonderful um woman and writer. I love Xenogenesis, which is a three-part, it's a trilogy. Xenogenesis uh, is probably one of my favorite um, sci-fi books of hers, but also Wild Seed, which was the first one that I read, which is part of the Paternus series, uh, or Pattern Master series, I think they call it Paternus, but um, all of those are great. She has a couple of other ones that were like, eh, I wasn't really sure, um, 
where this was going or what she was really doing. But those two that I mentioned, I am not a fan of Kindred, although that's what other people are saying is probably her best work. I don't necessarily think so. I think they just have a fascination with slavery. And so just the fact the travel back in time and slavery, um, I don't, it was, it's a good one, not any, no disrespect, but not my favorite. Moving on, there was a clip um, where the interviewer is talking about um, one of the, one of the race riots or revolutions or whatever they were calling it. And the interviewer says that this black man has two children from two marriages um, 20 years apart, and that that was something that we needed to know in order to understand the story. I disagree. I listened to what that female said, um, and perhaps there's more that I didn't hear, but from what I heard, that piece of information had nothing to do with what he was saying or what he was trying to say or the point of anything. And I don't know if that interviewer is white or non-white, but I feel like if that person is white, that female is white, that that's an act of racism, I'm always trying to bring up our family dynamics and what people are doing with their body and how um and so yeah i wasn't I, yeah um i do agree i'm a female and i think for i'm speaking primarily to younger females um to i guess a little bit that i have to agree with one of the clips that said that um young girls are viewed as being older um i've always had a lot of responsibility placed on me from a very young age but i've also like i'm not so sure i really had that kind of childhood that people think um i think a lot of things are happening to the young girls that force us to be more adult than we really are at the time that whatever age we're at even as teenagers i'm forced to relate to the world in a way that's um is just not correct um, so I wanted just to comment on that. And then for the Seattle clip about the laws that there are people moving that clip, and they said that the laws that were there to protect non-white people might now be used to keep them from getting back because you can't have, quote, unquote, unfair practices and whatnot. And I think that just goes to uh, show that laws are not, like laws are just made up things. These things don't protect or help at all, because if the purpose of the thing is to help non-white people from the beginning, the purpose of the thing should be to help non-white people in the end. There shouldn't be, oh, well, now we can't bring you back because now that's showing favoritism because we kicked you. I don't know. Like, that's that white people um, double speak type of stuff. And um, I'll say this, two things, and then I'll be done really, really quick. Or three things. Number one, for the young people, I, I want to reiterate what Gus said about the science and the math. Um, and even if you don't think you can do it, stick with it. Anything that anybody can do, you can do. We can do. I can do. Um, and that comes to organic chemistry, anatomy, physiology, basic chemistry, algebra, all of that. Stick with it. And it's like, don't listen to anybody else and just do it. Um, I've been doing an experiment. I'm not opening doors for white people. I'm just not. Um, and so, but white people have this thing where they want to race you to the door. Cool. That's fine. You can race me to the door all you want to because you're going to open that door. And so and it's so funny because they'll race me to the door and then expect that I'm going to open the door. They'll literally stand there and look at me and I'm looking at them and I just I just open my hand to the door like go ahead and open it. You're going to open the door for me. I've done it. It's worked. Um, 
in terms of me getting the door open and me not opening it for them. But I think it's very interesting because in that moment, there's a whole competition and so the expectation, whether that person is male, female, whatever, that's like seriously their thing. And I stood at a door. We were there for at least 30 seconds just looking at each other. And I just shifted my weight, shifted my weight back. Go ahead. You know what I'm saying? I'm not opening this door for you. Um, and so that was that. And then the last thing, I'm the one that's out here in the DMV, and I do think this is important, so I'm going to try to get it out real quick. Um, a young, non-white, black male came up to me to ask me if I had my voter registration card, blah, 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 blah. But he said something that I think is very poignant, and he said that the nation takes the lead from Virginia. And I think that that might have a lot more truth than what I want to accept. D.C.'s right here. D.C.'s part of Virginia, part of Maryland, and there it is. And that is absolutely true. And so I'm going to make it a point to let y'all know what I see. I don't know what's going on wherever y'all are at, but the white people over here have definitely taken their things up an entire notch in terms of their Confederate flags, their Trump flags. Like, it's nothing to be in Virginia now and see huge American flags um, flapping from trucks. Like, this is standard practice at this point, people in their T-shirts, um, people in their guns. You're definitely seeing that a lot. Um, and just a complete kind of, uh, like you can feel it. So I don't know, you know, what's happening in those closed chat rooms that they're doing, but Virginia is definitely, um, I think ready to move on to the next phase of whatever it is that the white people are about to do. And they've aligned themselves for that. Um, and they're polarizing. That's the word I want to polarizing us for that. So with that, thank you very much for listening and y'all have a good evening. A lot of that out here in Washington State as well. Wow, a lot of uh, hmm, a lot of static uh, coming in from that line. I'm not sure what that is. I think that might be our caller, Florida. Let's see if it's cleared up. Oh, okay, it's good now. I'm still hearing a little bit of it actually. Uh, I'll uh, I'll unmute it after a while and see if it is a little less noisy. Uh, are there other folks that uh, we have not heard from at all who have a hand up? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Greetings to you, the hosts, the callers, and the listeners. This is Mhandi C. Uh, I wanted to first comment on Emmy, uh, what she was saying about the Confederate flags and, and the American flags, and it seems like they're stepping things up, or maybe I shouldn't use that metaphor, but they're about to do something even more than what they've been doing. So I would just say, yeah, they're rallying their troops for war. And that's even the the movie, The War for the Planet of the Apes, all these movies that, you, that you've seen, all the movies that talk about um, extinction, all these movies that it's all rallying their people for, for war. Uh, all the talks that you hear on Facebook, I'm not Facebook, what's that, YouTube, if you look up what the white people are talking about, they're different white channels. There's a whole lot of these very popular white or ice albino people that are talking on these, these channels, and they're only talking about war, and they're only talking about killing black people, all of us. Um, but I wanted to I say, of course, we defeat these people. We will eradicate these people, these ice albinos. Um, one thing I wanted to mention in my city uh, that I seen something on Facebook where the FBI, this, they're, they're sending this around Facebook 
um, the FBI is recruiting hundreds of black women. And I say they're recruiting these black women to tell on black men. And But the FBI in my particular city, it says the FBI of my city, you know, is recruiting women, something about diversity and something about minorities, but it means they're recruiting black women. And I say they're recruiting them to tell on black men or just tell on the whole population. You know, another thing I was wanting to say is um, people, I, I think I think that, you know, we should look into uh, – uh, something was on YouTube I saw, uh, and I, lo- I looked up a few news clips of it. In 2003, um, over 70,000 individuals died in Europe from a heat wave, just a, just a wave of heat, you know, killed over 70,000 people. Um, that's something that we, we should just think about. Um, the other thing is we should verbally ask the universe to eradicate ice albinos, white people, white creatures. We should verbally ask the universe to eradicate them, to take them away, to get them off of us. And we should tell other black people, this is what we want. We have to tell black people that this is what we actually want because we all know what, we know what we want, but you have to verbalize it. The other thing I wanted to say is the winter is coming soon and the cold months will be here soon. And from my research, the Isalinos wage a heightened war during the cold months. And we need to be prepared for pre- we need to be prepared for that. And I would say they're they're moving they're they're doing all this movement as far as with the flags, with the speech, with the actions that they're heightening their their aggression, I, I would say that they're, they're waiting until the cold months when we're weaker for them to make a move. And because they're from an ice environment, uh, environment of ice and desolation, they're able to move and function uh, more effectively in the cold environment. And we need to pay attention to that and be prepared. I think that those of us that can should occupy, acquire and occupy high land and but also keep a residence in the valley with the rest of the black people we should make plans for our family we should make plans for as many black people as we can other black families as possible uh ice albinos do not belong here on earth they do not belong here i i I really think that we created these people i don't know why the hell we did that it was a bad idea it's been proven to be a bad idea however they came they're a bad idea to be here they're the central problem as has been said they are the central problem of the universe there's no reason for them to be here it, why would there's no this i i say it's, it's criminal for them to even reproduce why would you reproduce a genetic disease why would i mean seriously why would you reproduce albinism one intentionally but aside from albinism, because albinos in itself is not the problem. It's these particular white people from Europe. These people are the problem. And, it's, and it is criminal for them to reproduce. It, you should not reproduce a genetic disease. Uh, the last thing uh, that I would say, the last few things, is just as far as asking questions, I agree, always ask questions. When you ask questions from somebody, all they can do is tell you the truth. They may lie, 
but even a lie, all you can do is put together things that's already in your head. Just ask the question and wait and listen for the response. Eventually, you'll hear what you needed to hear. Uh, the other thing is we need projectiles, comparable or superior, if possible. We need projectiles, comparable or superior to our, our proclaimed enemy. We need intelligence. We need intel, information. And I would say this program is very useful, and it, it, has, it has so much information in the archives. So the other thing we need is evangelists to spread the information. It, it Maybe evangelists is, is, not, is a bad metaphor. I don't know. But, but we need people to spread this information. That's the other thing. Why do you have information if nobody knows it? And the last thing is, as far as America is concerned, the black people here are indigenous. Um, yeah, and we're also from Africa. That's cool. But all these other people here are invaders. But most particularly, these white people, these ice albinos are invaders, and they need to leave. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Uh, other folks who dialed in that we have not heard from, if you dialed in, we've not heard from you at all, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Yes, can I be here? Yes, ma'am. Hi, this is uh, Highly Victimized, HV for short. Uh, good evening, Gus, and to the callers and listeners. I really was going to let this go, but I can't do it. This Crystal Tyler, tacky, trashy, and maybe even terroristic. Um, she talked about how um, honorific or someone else may have asked her to come on or whatnot. That doesn't mean she don't have an agenda. You started the program playing back a tape where she was complaining about her experience. Well, I don't think you, like, agree, even if someone asks you to come back on a program or come back anywhere where you had a negative experience unless you had an agenda. And that, to me, was further confirmed by the way that she showed out. She showed out so much that she felt the need to, to attack a woman who, who passed away to attack a person who passed away, who's not here, speaking of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, who's not here to defend herself um, from, you know, these just ridiculous things that she was saying about her work and things of that nature. And then she, um, she, she cried, which I, I'm sure that, that that seemed to be very, very planned. I mean, because she, she talked a lot about how, her awareness, ultimately, of the things that, have been noted as incorrect behavior, crying being one of them. And she made sure that she did that. And, um, you know, she, she trashed her, her husband at every chance. She even veered off of questions just to trash him and then calling him a crackhead. That's like us calling, you know, white people meth heads or dog food heads, which are derogatory terms for drug addiction, for heroin or for meth or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, I think that's, that's all I have for now. Um, I'm trying to see if, no, I'll, I'll wait for anything else later, but, um, thank you for taking my call and thank everyone else for listening. Appreciate it. <clears throat> uh, other folks who dialed in that we have not heard from at all. If you have a hand up line should be open.
Okay. Wait, can I, can I be heard? Go uh, ahead, sir. Thank you. Yes, appreciate that, sir. Uh, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, I, I just wanted to share a couple of things that I heard from the audio segment. I believe it was that one uh, from Portland, Oregon, where the guy was, uh, I think he could have been pretending, um, I guess, you know, crying and whimpering and whatnot after he had committed that uh, crime. I believe uh, the report that I had read where he was, I guess, uh, driving alongside of some uh, non-white people for like four blocks or something and uh, saying some uh, um, white supremacist racial things to him. Uh, And later on, you know, I guess as he was going to court, you know, I guess they did some kind of report on him and he was crying or whatever. Uh, like there was this, I wanted to, I wanted to read the statement he said that I had seen on this site. And it, it says, um, his last name is Sorrell, Frederick Sorrell or something like that. He says, everything I see in black that is causing all these inflictions in the world, like ISIS, Antifa, the KKK with their white hoods, I would I would have done the same thing. You don't do that here. I'm just scared of some of the darkness I see. Like everything black, like the Grim Reaper, is affiliated with death. And you know, I found it interesting. They didn't really uh, get into that quote that he he had mentioned that, but he also mentioned, you know, of course, um, you know, my ignorance and my stupidity is why I opened my mouth, and I shouldn't have. So. You know, I, I can expect he would say that. Uh, but on the the other clip about the uh, the black female being called Andrew Mama, I, I found that very interesting. I think I think she was saying that it was some kind of intern in the room or something, and she may have been going to the doctor for a while, and he just came out and said that. And uh, apparently, I guess he said it twice. You know, and it wasn't. Uh, apologetic about it and I think they somebody from what I read I believe the term was used misspoken blunder like I don't know what that was supposed to articulate either so like nobody didn't call it you know racism or you know racism or something um but other than that and the last thing I wanted to share was uh like hearing that the, the piece on the I think the lady names are Octavia Butler and uh just you know being an artist myself like at a young age I uh I drew this um character design of a uh of a dark skinned female and I would I would put up these pictures in my room when I was like a teenager and you know like my family members would come in and see it you know they had mixed responses to it um but yeah you know I just found myself responding to uh racism at an early age so just something that i was thinking about that i wanted to share and uh, that's that's all i have for now thank you Mm. i suspect that is the case with a lot of young black people uh if i heard uh someone else spoke up simultaneously yes uh greetings can i be heard yes sir yes uh greetings 
us, um, the callers and listeners. This is Jay out of New York. Um, just wanted to touch upon a couple of things that uh, transpired this week. Um, I will add, I will agree with uh, a couple of the callers that mentioned earlier. Um, the tacky and terroristic um, crystal call that took place earlier this week. It was a tough week. I tried to get through that call, um, and I had to unfortunately drop off. Um, I, I just um, good information in reference to how they continue to practice, um, no matter what is going on in terms of, um, I think it was really practice on her part from what I uh, gathered, from what I was able to um, stomach uh, during that uh, time period that I was listening. But um, I guess I'll leave it there on that. Um, I, I did want to touch upon the um, Bukhari Henderson. I think um, we talked about this last week on the compensatory call-in. And I think this week the video came out um, of, of of the actual uh, terrorism and, and, and the lynching, I would call it, the that took place on the street. And I, I think I've mentioned on the call before that I traditionally try and not look at those videos. Um, but um, I thought maybe there could be something that I could pull from this to kind of show um, my little ones in reference to dealing um, with terrorists and calling them friends. Um, but I don't know if anyone saw the video. Um, they, they showed um, the, um, the victim, uh, Bukhari, running through the street. Uh, these individuals uh, trapped him, um, kind of collided him into a car, and just, uh, it was like 10, 15, um, just terroristic um, individuals just mobbed him. Um, and, and, and as we say on this show all the time, uh, the amount of terroristic um, white individuals that were out there that watched this go on um, I think there was one white terroristic young girl that jumped in the middle of the street and um, faintly tried to help. I guess you you could call it that. Um, but at that point, uh, he was pretty much uh, laying in the street. Um, and, and that's kind of where things, um, you know, kind of took the turn. But uh, it, it just was uh, very difficult to watch. Um, again, this is one of the reasons why I don't watch it. Um, but the one thing I did pick up from it is he was out there with his terroristic friends. Not one of them walked away with even a scratch on them. Um, so if you were out there with five or six friends, not one of them walked away with even a scratch, but they were crying in interviews um, in reference to how horrible uh, this event was. Um, so again, um, just kind of pointing to what we talk about on this show all the time that um, if you place yourself in this terroristic environment with these individuals, whether it's tragic relationships, or I would even call it tragic friendships, um, unfortunately, uh, this, this can also be the fate. And I think there was another female by the name of Darian Brittany Towns, uh, age of 23. I think she was a mother of three that also was in a tragic relationship and um, her place was set on fire. And I think they found her um, bludgeoned uh, within her, uh, her apartment or her home. Um, but, you know, it's kind of more evidence that um, the better for us to stay away from these individuals as they're trying to consume us, um, the safer uh, for us and the people who are close to us. Um, 
quickly just kind of moving along, um, I know we talked about uh, just kind of the medical apartheid. Uh, I did want to mention this on an earlier call. Um, individuals going to any type of um, checkup, um, I went to a checkup recently and everything was fine. I think one of the things we've been programmed to do is when they tell us everything is fine, to, we, we traditionally don't ask for the um, lab results. Um, so I started thinking about this, that we should always ask for lab results so that we can compare and contrast when they come back with any, you know, situations later on that this is wrong or, you know, this is not right in your workup or whatever the case may be. So you should have a copy of when things are good. And when they come back to you and tell you that something may be wrong, um, it took me three attempts to get my full workup in terms of all of the results with my uh, blood type and everything else. It seemed like they tried to limit the amount of information that they gave me initially, and I had to ask what I said three times to get the results. So I would just ask anyone. I traditionally try and stay away from going to those facilities, um, but if you do have to go, I would definitely ask to um, get that information. Um, and then just one last thing. I do agree with uh, what Emmy had mentioned in reference to the clip for the Newark, the gentleman in Newark. Um, where they mentioned his two families, and I didn't see any way, shape, or form how that connected to the part of the story that they were mentioning. So I'm going to have a couple of other things, but I'll jump back later on. I think I've uh, elapsed my five minutes. Thanks. Grant. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, line should be open. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Proceed. Hello, um, thank you for taking my call. Um, this is Red in Ohio. A few things that I, 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 was, I was kind of upset with myself that I missed the last uh, call, um, compensatory call-in because uh, there was a clip about some of the same thing I was speaking about, except um, the commentator, he referred to the drug or the substance as fentanyl, and I was speaking about fentanyl. Um, but what I had just continuing my research about what's happening here in Ohio, there was a newspaper article that it came out a couple of weeks ago, um, and it, it, the front page was a, a picture of a law enforcement official um, holding a box or holding a, uh, a dose of Narcan. And the first story, the cover page story, was about... Um, a female who, I'm sorry, a white woman who was um, resuscitated 20 times um, and just speaking about, you know, her quote-unquote um, hardships. And then there was another story where they had resuscitated a white man about five times, brought him back to life, and with the white woman talked about how bad she felt when they resuscitated her and and she also said, well, you know, it might have been, um, I'm sorry, she had spoke about how her friend, how she had resuscitated them, had, had resuscitated her friend um, using this uh, Narcan, and how her friend was kind of mad, like, oh, you've, um, you you made me sober again, basically. I'm trying to avoid a, a metaphor. Um, and I, I just thought that that was just, um, 
disgusting, to say the least. So I, I, also, I remember um, Thomas from New York saying something about, you know, maybe needing to invest in the stock of the fentanyl. I would actually invest in Narcan if, and I, and this is not the first time that I heard that they use uh, Narcan or um, the the real name of it is uh, Naloxone, N-A-L-O-X-O-N-E, if I'm not mistaken. And sometimes they have to actually, to resuscitate these people, they have to actually give them more than one dose especially it is depending upon how uh, potent the substance is. Another story within that same paper, it spoke about how police departments, it's optional for them to carry the Narcan so that way they can save more people. Some, um, some of the law enforcement officials who were interviewed, they said that, well, that's just going to make it more dangerous for them if they carry this, if they carry the Narcan and they have to actually administer it. However, there was one official who said that it was not optional for him. He felt like he needed to do that to save lives. And I felt like it definitely, this, that, um, reading that story now, understanding what I know or trying to learn more about racism, white supremacy, um, it makes you realize how much white people have trained non-white to, to love to respect them and to also be there for it, be there for them in their time of need. I say this because the the law enforcement official who said that it's not optional for him to carry Narcan is a non-white, non-black Asian person. I don't know if that's a, a good enough example. I'm, a, you know, like uh, Eastern Asia. Um, I actually looked up another to, to try to get because I can tell by his name that he was of that. Um, he was from that area, part of the world, and there was another story where he had helped out another uh, white family. Well, he said that he had saved about eight to ten lives. He only lost one. So just showing that we, um, some non-white people there are willing to risk their lives for whites, while other white people are not willing to necessarily risk their lives for their own people, for their own race. Um, one thing that actually happened to me within this week, um, it's a, a two tacky situation involving uh, white men. Me and my family, we actually do go out camping. I, I think I've uh, maybe spoken about that before when there was a camping segment that was played. And the first um, first thing I've noticed, of course, is that there, there weren't a, a, a lot of non-white people. Uh, we're... We're basically surrounded by white families. And one of the white men, because I've noticed that some of the white men, they would come over and kind of speak to some of the men within our campsite because we actually have um, individual sites. And one of the white men, because they didn't have a group site because they, they sell them differently at this particular at that particular location. So he comes over and he says, oh, well, y'all are like a commune, you know, like a community, ha, 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 one of their little jokes. And I, I kind of take, like, like a commune as, you know, something bad. You think of commune. Uh, when I think of commune, and I could definitely be an heir, um, you know, like back to the 60s with, like, the hippies or, like, um, with, what white people classify, like Middle Eastern people, as um, like with ISIS, 
how they might have like a commune. Um, the other thing that another white man said, um, there, it was an employee of the, of the park that we stayed at. They had like a trash pickup, um, I guess a trash pickup service. You kind of just put your bags near the curb. So he comes around, and we only have like two somewhat small bags. And he says, uh, you people are just full of trash, aren't you? And just kind of laughs, and he kind of waits um, before, he, I guess he, he waits a couple of seconds to see if we're going to laugh along with him. And then he, he, um, he has, he's in like this little go-kart, and so he, picks, he takes the trash and drives off. And I kept trying to tell my family, because that's, that's one of the things that I'm actually doing, is you know, just trying to subtly tell my family that, you need to be more suspicious of white people, especially when you're in a situation where you're basically, you know, one of the very few non-white people around. And I looked at one of my family members that I'm constantly speaking about racism to, and she just, like, just looked down at the ground and just kind of shook her head because she was she heard him, too. And there were some other family members around, and they were like, we don't know how to respond to this. And so when you um, when other callers have said something about um you know, having questions. I wish I had a question, and the question I would think that that I actually thought about now is, you know, is that something that you say to everyone when you pick up trash? Um, it didn't seem like this was a lot of trash to pick up to say that we are full of trash. Uh, I guess that would be um, it so far. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you, and for folks who are interested in, uh, I guess, your stock tip from the cows this week, Narcan, is uh, manufactured by Ampistar Pharmaceuticals. Ampistar Pharmaceuticals. Uh, they are on the exchange at AMPH. Their initials, AMPH, Ampistar Pharmaceuticals. Seventeen, a little less than $18 a share right now. Uh, if you think that that is something to invest in, there you go. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from... Uh, Line should be open. Feel free. Can I be heard? I heard both of you. We'll get a retired firefighter. Greetings, everyone. Uh, my first uh, report would be uh, on, uh, I believe her name was Crystal Tyler. Uh, is that correct? Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, to... Uh, remind the listeners uh, or inform some listeners that uh, uh, this is an expected behavior uh, out of a white person, especially a white female, uh, very consistent over the many years that I have uh, listened to white females and their uh, discourse uh, in general, let alone talking about the system of racism, white supremacy, uh, uh, who tries to give off what I sense is a sense of naivety, but at the same time, uh, very, uh, very articulate. When you, uh, when you look at their, you read their resume and or past, uh, it is highly, uh, uh, educated, uh, uh, but, uh, so just be expected, it's something to be expected. And uh, the reason why I uh, didn't 
ask any questions uh, as because I've heard her before. I've heard her before, even before I heard her personally. And then uh, she was on the program before. And uh, so I wasn't expecting anything new. Uh, perhaps her reasoning for coming back on the program again is to, that's what white people do. They, they uh, uh, don't mind. They get a, they get a uh, uh, fun, as Mr. Fuller said, out of defecating on the efforts of non-white people uh, to solve the problem. And right now she may be somewhere comfortably uh, sleeping or being in comfort uh, with the idea of understanding that they're not even close to solving the problem. And I am uh, uh, participating into making it more difficult. And by the way, I'm also getting an allowance in the process of, of, of doing it. So, uh, that's basically where I, uh, uh, define, uh, uh, crystal, uh, went out of town, uh, to be exact Pensacola, Florida, uh, just to give you an idea it's it's so, so far away from South Florida is actually in another time zone, central, central standard time, uh, a football camp. Uh, primarily I was there with my uh, offspring, uh, at the football camp. And, uh, one thing I quickly observed, uh, because I was just there to watch. Uh, and, uh, so I basically stayed to myself. I wasn't into, uh, being sociable with anyone, including, uh, non-white people as far as they're concerned, but white people are very crafty in, in their practice of being white. Uh, they will come around and uh, attempt to engage into what I define as idle conversation. Uh, they would say something first. And uh, for the most part, what I did, I didn't respond at all. Just didn't, resp just didn't respond at all. You know, they would, act, they, would, they would put things in a term of a question. One guy asked me, uh, how was I feeling? How, how are y'all feeling? And uh, I start. I started to uh, repeat the comment that the uh, the famous uh, football player, the Dallas Cowboys, Dwayne Thomas, uh, gave. Uh, Are you a doctor? <laughs> you know. But I, I decided just not to say anything. Just totally ignore what uh, this white male was uh, asking. Uh, that sort of thing, and uh, just kept it moving as far as as far as that concern. Uh, the, they are very crafty because they they understand more so than non-white people that uh, due to the global system of racism and white supremacy, there's a high level of contingency of, of uh, resentment and uh, hostility in this world. In this world, they are, they are very much aware of it, more so than we are. And their, their attempts to, to engage in the idle conversation is to kind of like measure on whether or not non-white black people uh, are coming into some sort of uh, understanding and putting it to action. Uh, because when we start just ignoring their, their feeble, their, their, not feeble, but their attempts to engage with us other than about the global system of racist white supremacy, uh, they, they, they would not uh, be very nice as they can show a lot of times. 
And uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Appreciate that, retired firefighter. I think uh, someone spoke up simultaneously. Did you have commentary? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, sorry, I hope it's not a lot of background noise. I was driving. Uh, greetings to everybody. A um, couple of things, uh, good observations. Um, the first one was um, in reference to Newark. Um, it's, this whole broadcast was pretty ironic because I was sick yesterday, and when I'm sick, that's the only time that I kind of maybe get to watch a movie quote-unquote, because usually I'm working or I'm reading or just I'm out. But um, I watched two movies yesterday, and the first one was, uh, I never saw it, was New Jersey Drive. And it talks about, I believe, Jersey City, that Newark area. And um, I think that they need to find, I love Isabel Wilkerson, I love the book, but um, I think there has to be a new name uh, instead of the Great Migration, because all it seems like is just, it can almost be like a zombie movie, black people on the run. Because literally all I heard was listening to that broadcast or listening to that news clip was, okay, we were running from white people down south, and then we get up north and we're running from white people up north. So it's just constant terrorism. Um, I'm sure you've mentioned this before, Gus, but, and I don't know if you can answer this question now, but the Young Turks, um, are they victims of racism? because they sure do identify as white whenever I listen to them. Um, just sometimes the way that they talk about uh, black people specifically, it doesn't seem like there's I can't. I don't even know the right word to put on it, but it's like a tone of sarcasm uh, to where they're kind of being serious, but it's still tacky at the same time. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but it's just... It's just a strange vibe that they can, that I kind of get from them. I don't know if it's just me. Um, the other thing was I was thinking about Octavia Butler, um, and I didn't. I, I don't. I'm not familiar with uh, with that work or anything of that nature. Uh, but when I heard the year uh, that she first wrote, you know, one of those books, I think it was 1979, and I'm thinking about you know all the Back to the Futures and all those other films and how many probably suspected racists or racists, you know, saw some of her ideas and used her ideas in some of their works, and she probably wasn't accurately credited. Um, also, uh, my father, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but um, he's in ministry, and he came back from a conference maybe about two weeks ago. I just didn't get a chance to mention it. And one of the people that he was speaking to was a guest on this program, and I always remember it because it's the episode where Firefighter had asked him for the compensatory request for the laptop. It was that gentleman. I think he, I, I can't remember his name, but uh, I showed my dad a clip of him before. Uh, he doesn't listen to the cows, but um, I showed him, I, I shared him with him the broadcast before, and I just found it interesting. And my father said he talked to him again, and this time, he was speaking to large numbers of uh, white and non-white people about issues with police brutality. So I'm sure, Gus, you'll probably remember the name. And then the last thing was I was sick. I mentioned that, but yesterday was the first time that I actually uh, was able to watch the movie Malcolm X. I know that might be surprising, but I've never watched it. Um, I've heard of it and heard clips, but there's a scene in the movie to where uh, – there's a black male 
and he walks up to Malcolm and he says, you're the first, first he says N-I-double-G-R, I don't want to say it, uh, on the broadcast and that's hers. But then Malcolm looks at him and he says, you're the first Negro I've ever seen talk seriously uh, to white people. And basically that's what attracted me to the broadcast and why, that's why I continue to listen to it because this is probably one of the only places to where we have serious uh, constructive conversations about um, the system of racism and white supremacy. Oh, one last thing, um, Area 8. Um, I know Thomas already brought it up, but um, that whole Omar, you know, for people that were listening to Thomas earlier, that whole, he said a lot of things, and Dr. Umar has given tons of interviews on a lot of places, but the reason why he got so much attention was Area 8. Talking about sexual activity, so that's just another observation. And I'll mute my line. Thanks, Joe. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Hi to just the host and to all the callers, other callers and listeners. Um, great show. And um, just a couple of things. Um, the very first clip that you played about a fade that about the um survey or the research, you know, saying about um. Uh, you know, young girls, you know, as young as, what, 5 to 14, I think, like that, how they're black girls, you know, how they're, you know, there's black girls supposed to be, know so much more about sex and all those things like that. And, I mean, it's just something about that, that research that just really bothers me. And I think one thing is only 325 people were asked, and I think 62% of the respondents, I think, were white women. So, 74% of that 325 were white, and I think 62% were white women from, from what I heard. So I, I guess for me, it's just like, so this is what white women are saying about black women, you know, and there's a historic hatred of white women to black women. And so, I, you know, I'm just going to leave that there because I it's just something to me about, you know, and somebody may tell me that, oh, well, you know, you might be naive, but there's something about five-year-old girls knowing so much more about sex, you know. That's just me. So I, I just wanted to mention that. Um, in terms of, um, oh, God, I have some of the other things that I come up. Oh, the the lady who you went to see about the book. And I read, you know, your your post, and when you said she calls you militant, so, you know, I was just like, well, you know, you're talking about race, and that's how it is. That's how, you know, unfortunately, some black people begin like, oh, you're militant. But I was just really kind of shocked, too, when you said she would talk about race, because I'm like, pretty much her story is about race. It's about what her, at that time, her then fiance, who is now her husband, who was going through, uh, uh, you know, things and getting the kidney. And when I read the article that you had attached to uh, the post that you put up, I mean, it was, it was just, you know, because I, I remember I was at work and I read it, and I remember I went to the ladies' room and I was thinking about this, this article. and. I, I was like, you know, it's just like black people, it's just like, you know, we're the guinea pigs of this medical establishment here. And if I understand that this country is supposed to have the best medical care, that's what they say. So I'm sitting there, I said, so we're getting the worst of the best care, you know. And it was just amazing some of the things in the article where where um, she said how when they, when she went with her fiance, her then fiance, and we're talking to the team and you know, someone would come in and just kind of like glance at them. And then it's like you have this spill for black people. Well, African-Americans don't this, so blah, blah, blah. You know, African-Americans don't this, so blah, blah, blah. So 
uh, in the article where she talks about, they talk to the white woman who has old, old positive blood. And, and however, she had kidney, you know, problems. And she was told, I think it was like six months. And basically her fiance was the same thing. But when they asked the team about, you know, about how long would it take him, to, you know, the, the, the nurse, I think it was like, oh, it's going to be a year for you. So, you know, when, when I was reading and you were saying that, you know, she didn't want to talk about racism, you know, it's kind of it's like you're fudging here. You you are not being honest. I mean, she became a, a nephrologist, which is a kidney doctor, basically because of what her now husband, you know, had gone through. So it's like, and you, system, a system clearly racial, racist, however you want to say it, and yet you write a book that pretty much, the story, the story here is race and how race permeates all through this, and yet you get out in this this uh, you know group of people to talk about it. Yeah, you don't want to talk about that, and I, I just kind of I kind of call foul on that, you know, because I'm just like you, you're not being honest in um, in my opinion in what you're doing. Um, I do know she was speaking to a white audience, but I, I'm just to the point. I, I just think that black people, we just we we just have to stop, you know, stop this, you know, being so concerned for their feelings. Tell your story. I don't care how angry they get. Tell your story. That's just that is just the story. You know, it's like with this country. You talk about Spain. You get angry. It's the history of the country. So you know. So I I just thought that was really something. Um, someone on the one of the callers mentioned something about the fact. I think the, the young man who talked about the ice albinos. That's what he called them. And just talking about things, you know, really that we should do, like he says, winter getting ready to come. But he, he mentioned something about the flag. And I don't know if anybody, if you read Gus or anybody else online, I saw an article where the flag in South Carolina that the young lady, Bree, what's her name, Bree, uh, Bree, they went up her and the white guy. Yeah, and they took it down. Well, it's my understanding, it's back up. And there was a picture I was looking at, um, some picture on, on Facebook, they had the, uh, I don't know if they state patrol, but they were in like the what is Confederate uniforms. There was a black woman standing there because I'm looking at the picture. I'm like, well, why is she dressed like a slave? And then when I read the article, you know, all that came into play. And so it made me think. I remember at the time this was going on, you even had made a statement that said, just just leave them up. And I'm I'm like, you said for a minute, I said, oh, maybe they need to go down. You know, this is, you know, uh, uh, they should be in a museum because this is a, a failed, you know, this nation. The Confederacy was, which was the nation, you know, uh, was defeated. And then, you know, when I started thinking about it, I remember you said it, you said, you know, they should leave them up. And then I started thinking about it, and I said, that is true. Those those monuments should be left up. Because, and, and, and I ain't so much worried about white people. You know who the concern is? It's black people. Because we act then as if, well, things have changed. And it, it, things haven't. And if anything, things have gotten worse. And it's going to get worse. That's so why I, I and, and, and it's been two years, and and you know that flag has gone back up. So I, I felt like to say this though, we get really upset about well, black people generally speaking, you know, get really upset about the Confederate flag. And so today I was driving uh, on my way to the store here where I live at, and I was driving past this uh, auto dealership. And I don't, I kind of noticed auto dealerships have the largest flags just fine. I mean, this thing was huge. And I remember I, I was thinking about that story, and I was looking up as I was driving, and this huge flag, you know, flying. And I said, it's so funny, as the black people, we get so upset about that Confederate flag, 
And the reality is the most horrendous, horrific behaviors or things done to blacks, done to us as black people, have really happened under what they call old glory, which is the flag that we know today. So that flag has always been in existence. It's it's just evolved. You know, now we find out that the uh supposed to be the you know the story about Betsy Ross doing this flag or something like that. Now that I understand the fourth of July that they talk about this stuff, so that's a lie. So however the flag came about, but it has evolved to what we have today. The stars of the stripe, the fifty this is fifty stars, you know, in the stripe. So the flag has evolved. So all the stuff and all the horrific, horrendous, trifling, tacky, terroristic behavior that has happened to black people has happened under old glory. And I sit up here and I said, black people, and I said, but if you talk to black people about that, they would just be like, and I'm like, but we're getting, we that's in quotes, are getting upset about a flag. 30 seconds. And I know what it represents, okay? And I know what it represents, but we're getting upset really about something that we possibly really shouldn't be getting upset. Uh, anyway, thank you for taking my call. The show is great. I'll meet my line. Yes, ma'am. Uh, yes, sir, Ken Steele. Awesome, awesome. Um, this is uh, Ken Steele, and I'm uh, reporting from um, Ladera Heights, I believe. And um, I wanted to um, just report on um, a couple of things. Um, the first being, I recently uh, was getting a steak with uh, one of my associates from Canada, and uh, he was in uh, Los Angeles, and he wanted to uh, get steaks at some place with a view. So we went to a place called Prime LA. And I went to uh, Prime LA, and uh, my friend, he, or my associate, rather, he, uh, you know, said, order whatever you want, um, you know, get whatever you want. Money's not a, a, an object. So we, you know, we ran up the menu. We were just, you know, ordering a ton of stuff. We had a, a pretty substantial bill um, that had uh, been, you know, associated with our table uh, by the end of everything. Now, I've been in these situations with uh, suspected racists while dining with suspected racists. And at this point, you know, the, the chef is coming out. They're usually, you know, uh, offering you um, bottles of wine to sample. Um, you know, they're just rolling out um, all of the extras because they realize, hey, you're spending a lot of money. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they treat you, uh, really nice. Well, this was quite different. My associate, um, he is, uh, I, I guess, uh, uh, what would be described as, a, an, an Indian, um, uh, and he's of, uh, kind of, a he's not as dark as me, but he's, uh, he's, you know, uh, pretty melanated. And, uh, what happened on this? outing was very strange uh at one point in our meal we're just you know having a discussion enjoying the view and two security guards both of them were very large um came up to our table and i noted that um it was a, a kind of a, a lighter skinned black uh, non-white person and he just proceeded to ask us his first question to me was, uh, so what do you, do you, can you recall your order? I was just like, whoa, what, 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 you know, I've never been asked 
that type of question at a dining experience in my life and by by security uh, no less and um you know i told him i don't know i ordered the the steak that was on top of the list that was recommended and uh you know and he's just like oh okay top of the list huh and i'm just you know uh, you know i'm just really nervous at this point he kept on asking questions and my my associate he was getting nervous and you know i finally said look i we just want to eat our meal can you please you know just uh you know, leave us be. And he said, Oh, all right. And then he said, you know, I'm only asking these questions because, you know, I want my friends to eat here someday. And I was just, you know, kind of just checking to see, you know, how the food was, yada, yada, yada. And I, you know, I've never been asked by security about the food. And, you know, I noted that this was a very strange and my associate, uh, he also noted that this was very strange. And we had discussions about racism earlier on his trip and he kind of, you know, wanted to downplay the significance of it. But, you know, this was kind of an undeniable situation because he had never been in this situation before either. So we asked the manager, um, you know, about, you know, what had just happened. And we requested that they bring, you know, uh, the captain or whoever is in charge. And, uh, you know, um, something that I noted, uh, you know, that was very, um, hmm, it's just a pattern that I've seen and that I've observed. Um, what happened was they brought the manager, um, or the person that they say that was the manager and it was a, a husky voice, uh, uh, victim of racism, uh, black, uh, uh, female in a pantsuit. Now, this is something that I've noticed. This is like a uniform. This is something that I've, I've noticed throughout, you know, on TV, they have this kind of archetypical husky voice uh, victim of racism that is there specifically to diffuse any sort of claims that racism took place 30 seconds. at a, a specific event. So that's just something that I noticed that was, you know, going on at this uh, place. Of course, she told us that, you know, everything was fine and this was normal. And, you know, we noted that it wasn't. And uh, we left uh, a pair of uh, very descript um, Yelp reviews to reflect that. Oh, and, uh, you know, after we paid our bill, um, you know, they started calling us sir. And um, they wanted to give us a tour of the rotating floors and everything like that. And it was just very tacky. And um, we were trying to leave and they didn't let us leave. They just wanted to show off their place. And. I, I don't know. I was not impressed. Um, don't need an L.A. crime. Thank you. <laughs> Duly noted. Uh, other folks we missed completely. Uh, Caller 2613. Uh, anybody, anybody we missed completely? Have you heard? Yes, sir. Uh, good evening. Greetings, Gus. Uh, to the callers, listeners, uh, this is The Voice. I didn't catch the earlier um, clips because I'm up here in Maryland. D.C., Baltimore area, um, celebrating 75th birthday of my dad. So, um, (laughs) appreciate it. Um, when Emmy spoke earlier, it, like, it was so crazy how she picked up on that about how, um, with Virginia and how these whites are on code and they're ready for war. Is that, was that Emmy? 
Am I wrong? Was that Emmy that was that spoke up? I believe it was. Okay, cool. Um, so I'm getting off the airplane, and this was so crazy because I get off the airplane, and when I go through the terminal, I picked up my bags, and I'm outside waiting for my brother to pick me up. And while I'm waiting, I'm literally almost elbow to elbow with this white guy, and we're leaning against the, the railing. And here comes the Maryland cops. So, <laughs> you know, they patrol the airport. So I, I'm like, okay, let me see the difference between the cops up, you know, in Florida versus the cops up in Maryland, because I haven't been to Mar- back to Maryland since um, you're talking about I left here in 2001, but uh, when I was living in Columbia, it was real, real, there was a lot of racial issues and, and um, episodes that me and my friends had in 94 through 98. And, um, you know, when the cop, I'm looking at the cop and I'm observing the cop and the cop, he's looking at me and he's staring at me and he's walking towards our direction and his his eyes only come off of me right as soon as he passed but then he puts his eyes on the white guy now mind you the whole time he's just looking at me with this this stare like you know <laughs> like I'm a target and then he puts his eyes on the white guy and as soon as he locks eyes with the white guy he tips his hat to him and walks by and I'm like wow these people are so on code and it's just like the tension out here is just serious and at that moment i always been codified myself but at that moment i already knew what time it was i made a tweet about it and you know just to let people know that the the, the atmosphere it has really changed and you have to be on alert so i just wanted to um chime in and say, say that to you guys because i know i dropped off my dad and uh kind of running late so that's why i end up coming on at the end of the program but i just want to let you guys know that and i appreciate everybody on here and um everybody just be safe and i'll mute my line indeed again happy birthday to your father uh caller at 2613 did you have commentary you wanted to get in before we wrap up uh yes i did uh i i was the first caller of the, of the uh broadcast but that was what i wanted to say and uh, I just want everybody listening to know that Caucasians have a code because they are countering nature on every level, not just some levels, but every level. And what I notice with dealing with them, especially at work, is that they look for a compromise, your willingness to compromise. They beg your pardon, ask your forgiveness after they violate. Because the natural response to violation is correction, and they would do anything to avoid correction, including demanding, coercing, ordering, begging our uh, permission for them to to go without viol- uh, go, to go without correction. So always push them to speak precisely to what they're doing. And this this is how you disrupt their code. Thank you. Great suggestion. That's uh, that is one I can definitely say from practice. Uh, one of the huge benefits from using the most accurate terms, being correct, 
in the way that we talk about things, that has a tendency to minimize the ability or effectiveness of someone who's trying to be deceptive. If everyone is constantly on alert and making an effort to try to be as accurate as they can when talking about things, you can greatly minimize someone who's trying to be deceptive. That has been something that I've observed and practiced. With that, we'll be here tomorrow early. Global Sunday talk on racism, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific. Uh, We'll have listeners uh, from around the world participating. Uh, We'll catch up on what has happened on the global plantation. Uh, That'll be tomorrow. Looking forward to it. Uh, Folks, if you have guest suggestions, problems, if you can't find something in the archives, uh, just drop me an email until justice at gmail.com. Let me know until justice at gmail.com. And I will try to help out as best I can. Uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. Uh, I will again say sobriety would be best under conditions of war. We talked about the situation, uh, in Greece, Solomon Northup, James Byrd Jr. There are a number of black people over the years, over the centuries who have been felled by alcohol or narcotics, uh, of some sort, even the black female in Chicago, who was brutally beaten by this race soldier uh, who owns all these racist domains, uh, niggerdown.com and all this other stuff. Uh, It was allegedly, she was stopped allegedly for suspicion of driving under the influence. Just we, that's another thing we can just be synonymous with taking great care of ourselves and making a part of that really endorsing sobriety. I think excessive alcohol consumption, I think that can lead to kidney problems. I am not a doctor. But I think that could be true. So we could just make that a part of our code. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time. We are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.